0: very depressed
1: when you hum all the while they're beating Honey, up
2: I don't want to hurt you I want to change you of the
1: 200 marriages that I have performed all but seven have failed we it's don't dangerous like to, to challenge the a system unless you're completely at peace with the thought that you're not going to miss it when it collapses
2: oh, kissing you is like kissing white bread
0: okay I made it to the hall. See if I can walk in and not find burglars in the hallway. I
2: want to be married to a big, strong, vital, virile, self-assured man that I can protect and take care of. Elliot Gould, Donald Sutherland, Lou Jacoby, Alan Arkin, Marsha Rodd, in Jules Pfeiffer's Little Murders, Assume you don't see, you witness. Rated R, under 17, not admitted, without parent. Joseph E. Levine presents... The new film, produced and directed by Mike Nichols.
1: Carnal Knowledge, starring Jack Nicholson, Candace Bergen, Arthur Garfunkel, and Margaret. Written by Jules Feiffer. Carnal Knowledge is Mike Nichols' best, says Hollis Albert of the Saturday Review.
2: Judith Crist of New York Magazine says, Carnal Knowledge is brilliant, a feast of a film. Rex Reed calls it a towering achievement,
1: A shattering experience for everyone. Carnal knowledge. I was sorry to see it end, says Vincent Canby of the New York Times. And Liz Smith of Cosmopolitan says, Carnal knowledge is one of the best movies ever. Carnal knowledge, an AFCO embassy release. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parent.
2: All right. Coming to you live from the, well, not live. (laughs) Coming to you from the podcast suite. At the University of Wisconsin-Madison um, IMC, what is that? Instructional Instructional
1: Media Center, the, Instructional, the podcast suite.
2: The Instructional Media Center, the podcast suite. We are alive, sitting in the same room together. Yes. My name is Ben Reiser. Across from me is Jim Healy. Hi, Jim. Hello, Ben. So, yeah, so maybe this is officially, this is the start of the post-pandemic. Yeah, that's nice. It's nice to be
1: in the same room together. Maybe we can do it more often. Yeah. (laughs) You
2: and I, uh, back in the day, pre-pandemic, we did a few um, episodes of Cinema Talk. Yes. This episode is probably going to be a crossover into the Cinema Talk brand as well. here in this room but we haven't been here in a long time some of the equipment is new i don't know exactly how to work it but it looks like things are working so uh hopefully we are good to go anyway uh thanks for joining us this is um an episode about two films uh and uh i was gonna say there's what ties them together uh is jules pfeiffer but it's more than that i mean yes that's that's what ties these two films together they were also they also were both released in 1971 about 6 months apart from each other. Not HF. quite. I think
1: like February and June. So like if you were yeah, almost 6 months, you're right. But if you were if you were, you know, in the same city like when Carnal Knowledge was released, you could probably find another screen showing Little Murders at the same time.
2: Yeah, I didn't do this research, but I'm wondering it seems Seemed like seemed like it would be an obvious double bill back in the seventies when they were pairing films all the yeah. time. But these were yeah. not the same studios, right? No, and
1: I'm sure like, but I'm sure repertory houses were sure picked up on it well into the even the eighties. I'm sure. Sure, sure. In fact, I think I think I even remember like looking at like the Varsity calendar in Evanston, Illinois, and mm. um, maybe even like in New York and New Jersey in the early eighties seeing this as a double feature i'm almost positive that they played together and I'm, I'm sure you know somebody putting together Jules Pfeiffer.
2: right yeah i mean it's it's a it's an obvious double bill um so much so that we're doing it in our own way here at cinematech this semester uh we have one program which was two francis ford coppola films that i insisted that we call a couple of coppolas this could have been uh, a few fifers. Fistful of fifers? Fistful of fifers.
1: Maybe, like, maybe, it's, maybe two movies isn't quite a fistful. Maybe if we showed Popeye, we'd, we'd, have, we'd have all of his uh, screenplays up.
2: I do like Fistful of Fifers. Now, didn't he also? Well, he did the point. Right? Or the point or Phantom Tollbooth? Something I thought no.
1: he Oh, there's an animated short he didn't do Phantom Tollbooth and he he didn't have anything to do with the point, I don't think, but there's an animated short from the early sixties called Monroe, which won the Oscar, which he wrote. And I don't know if that was based on one of his comic strips or something, but but I don't I don't know that much about Jules Pfeiffer. Do you what what have you found in your research? I know he's still around. He is still around. I've I I'll tell you my I
2: knew I knew Jules Pfeiffer as a kid growing up in New York City. Uh, he had a a regular cartoon uh, series, a comic strip um, in the Village Voice, uh, which I was a dedicated reader to.
1: Was it always p- uh, multiple panels, or was it just like a w- one panel, like a like a New Yorker style?
2: Uh, my memory of it is that it was multiple panels. It was usually. Uh, conversation they, they almost felt like overheard conversations in New York which was another hmm. um, feature either in The New Yorker or the Village Voice I can't remember which one it was uh, uh somebody would somebody would just write down overheard you know right. overheard and you'd hear like you know you'd read um, but Jules Pfeiffer's cartoon strips or comic strips always seem to have that feel to them like he had witnessed these two people talking at a party and was just sort of drawing a cartoon of them um i, I don't know that that's actually it, what yeah it
0: was.
1: they weren't connected and the, the, the but they maybe they would appear on the same page or something the overheard conversations in jules Pfeiffer yeah they
2: weren't connected at all i'm just uh, right but and, but
1: yeah you're just saying they had the same kind of feel cuz why did i think he had something to do with
2: some more well-known cartoon like a feature
1: film. Well, you know, he wrote a feature film of Popeye. Yeah. Based on L.C. Seeger's comic strip and the Max Fleischer cartoons.
2: He also wrote uh, Alain Rene's I Want to Go Home.
1: Ah, yes. I've seen that film. It's not bad. And the star of that movie is Adolf Adolph Green. And it's in it's it's a Rene film that's mostly in English, if I remember right. And Adolph Green was the um, librettist and screenwriter for a number of great Hollywood musicals and Broadway reviews. He wrote Singing in the Rain with his wife, Betty Comden. It's Always Fair Weather. I think he wrote On the Town. Right. Uh, um, sure. But an occasional actor. He's the... I think I want to say he's the producer of the TV show in my favorite year, but oh. uh, that's an, that's a um, that's a pretty good movie. That's that's a, 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 most Rene films are worth seeing. I mean, I'd say all of them, but uh, uh, that's a um, that's a pretty good one. I was right.
2: He illustrated the book of the Phantom Tollbooth. He is the books. He is the Phantom Tollbooth illustrator. Oh right. And I don't know that that translated. I can't remember.
1: Well, Chuck Jones did the did directed the movie, or at least the animated parts. And I don't. And I have a feeling that he went on his own. And I don't know if they didn't he, base them on the yeah, Fifer like yeah, I can't imagine because I've seen the movie and it has a real uh, Grinch type look to it. You know, it's, it looks like a Chuck Jones. Right. Although I guess you know. When Chuck Jones did The Grinch, he did take a lot of inspiration from Dr. Seuss, but... He's... And Pfeiffer is also... He's also, like, a... um, Like, what Scorsese is to cinema, he is to comics, right? Isn't he, like, a... Isn't he, like, a bit of a comics historian? Like, he knows everything about cartoons and comics?
2: Yeah, well, he started off working with that guy, Will Eisner. Oh, the spirit. Yeah. So... He goes way back. Yeah. And yeah, I do think he's taken an interest as a...
1: Yeah, like he's, a, he's in, you know, the grand old statesman of... Right, right. But so anyway,
2: so growing up, I knew Jules Pfeiffer uh, almost entirely from his Village Voice weekly strip. Um, but these two movies, I mean, so this seems to me like 1971 and these two movies, Little Murders and Carnalologist, sort of like the uh, apex of... Uh, Pfeiffer's uh career as a screenwriter um and also as you know it's the high watermark of any movies that were made from material that he had anything to do with um right i mean uh it's interesting that he that that 1971 was a big year for him yeah uh and then you know he went off in other directions i don't think he was
1: yeah it wasn't like a, it wasn't like Screenplay after screenplay. As far as I know, I mean, it's quite possible he was working on a ton of things and that never got made. But I think the next thing after Carnal Knowledge is that he gets credit for is Popeye. Well, in both cases of these
2: movies, uh, Little Murders and Carnal Knowledge, they neither one of them started off as
1: screenplays, and That's they, right.
2: they weren't. Hit, neither one were, were intended to be films.
1: No, although Carnal Knowledge never got beyond a kind of nascent form of. Of being a stage play, it was Mike Nichols really took charge, and you know, and made made it into a movie.
2: Right. I think he Pfeiffer gave um, Nichols the the script, which uh, which was supposed to be a play. Right. And Nichols said, "This is this is a movie, not a play." Right. Um, And with um, with Little Murders is there even a more convoluted sort of um, journey? Uh, in that he first envisioned and started to and and perhaps might have well, no, uh, I've been reading a lot and listening to a lot of Jules Pfeiffer talk about these things mm. and he 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 was in little murders. let's talk about little murders first. yes, so let's go chronologically. he uh, was inspired that's the word by the JFK assassination, uh, which is sixty three right and then the uh, week later or so the um Oswald killing by Jack Ruby um those two things inspired him to write little murders he was he was really struck with the idea of these of, of gun violence and right. and and the state of the country and and the idea that you know people were just getting shot left and right
1: yeah i get the feeling like what moved him most was just the fact that you know even though it it really did disrupt and disturb american life the both of those killings that you know we could just we could watch them both on tv and then you know be expected to you know sit around the dinner table at the you know the next you know that that evening or even the next morning you
2: know right but so he started to write it as a novel uh and took a ton of notes and then I don't know how far he got, but at some point, I think early on he realized that it was it was terrible. the the ter- The novel, his ideas for the novel, or maybe his first draft of a novel, was not doing any of the things he was trying to do.
1: It wasn't necessarily the the story that became the play in the movie. It was it was maybe something different, or maybe something that really did incorporate the. The Kennedy assassination?
2: Uh, I don't think so. I do think it was this story. I didn't hear. I haven't read or heard him say anything about like a, a different plot or different characters. Uh, but if that's possible. Um,
1: the story of Alfred and what's Marcia? Patsy? Patsy,
2: right? Um, and so then he it turned it into a, a play, which I think he was happy with his with his script for the play. And it was it was produced as a Broadway show,
1: right? First Broadway didn't didn't go to Off Broadway; went straight to Broadway.
2: Yeah, I think there was I think there was this sort of an out of town run, maybe in Boston, uh, which they right okay, typically that happens, would do. Yeah. But uh, it opened on Broadway with
1: Elliot Gould, right?
2: With Elliot Gould, um, and it was apparently a complete bust, uh, and it only ran for a week. Um, and and Fiefer tells a couple stories about that Broadway run. First, that the final dress rehearsal uh, before and, and in those days, critics theater critics would actually come on opening night and review the show as it opened. These days, and it's been this way for a, a while. Critics come much earlier during previews, um, and 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 review the version that's in previews. So. I think productions have to make sure that they're really up and running and firing on all cylinders uh, much earlier in their sort of preview run.
1: But sometimes Uh, those sneaky New York critics go to the other cities and watch, you know, Boston. Oh, that's even worse. Yeah, sure. And they'll they'll panic. I think I remember uh, hearing, I think that's what happened. There was a stage production of uh, Confederacy of Dunces with Nick Offerman that happened. Um. I think it was the same thing in Boston, and the New York critic snuck up to see it and and savaged it in the paper. Something like that. I think something something like that happened, and it never even made it to New York.
2: Yikes, that's too bad. Uh, although, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so, uh, so, so, Pfeiffer tells the story of that the final dress rehearsal he attended, and it was fantastic, which he knew... He, He went and and drank a lot afterward because he knew that a great final dress rehearsal meant that opening night would be a bust Uh, for some reason. Like he he understood that to be the case, that if you have a great dress rehearsal, your first performance is going to be no good. Um, uh, Which I used to hear when I was in a band that, uh, you know, that if your rehearsals are going well, your show is not going to live up to those rehearsal. Um, And I don't know if that was true or not, but I'm sure it was on occasion. Uh, so there was that. So the, the play did get poor reviews and um, nobody came. Like there was, there, were, there was very limited attendance. But on the second to last day of what turned out to be its week-long run on Broadway, um, uh, he said there were about 11 people in the audience and they were all younger people. Like, I, you know, I think he's trying to say that they were sort of hippies, counterculture types who had somehow made it to this production and they were the only ones basically in the audience. And that they loved it and they gave it a standing ovation. And he, and again, he was like, ah, yes, this is what the show should be. This is the perfect audience for it. And, of course, it closed the next day. Uh, but interestingly, a production was already being mounted uh, at the same time in the UK by the Royal Shakespeare Company. Um, they had already like said, we want to put this production on as well and uh so and and they were just behind this broadway production they were sort of like if i'm looking at the timeline correctly they're only like weeks weeks away from i guess launching maybe rehearsals or maybe previews um and pfeiffer traveled to the uk and talked to the director of that production and gave him all kinds of notes about what he thought worked and didn't work about the broadway production I think this this director didn't take any of those notes to heart, um, and Pfeiffer Pfeiffer is interesting when you when you listen to him talk because he vacillates between saying I was wrong about everything mm. and they I every time I get involved with a production it's a mistake and so I try to stay away from productions at all costs because I'm the worst at coming up with stuff. And then the other half of the time, when you listen him talk, he's talking about how wow, I was right about everything, you know, and hmm. I predicted all this stuff, and I, you know, everything that I said would happen came to be. And
1: he's a legendary curmudgeon, right? Isn't he? I don't, I don't know. I've never, don't, I've never heard these interviews. He didn't, he doesn't come off that way so much.
2: Eh, not really. I mean, in a way that, uh, I mean, he's a, he's a New Yorker. You know, he's yeah. got that whole thing. He's, you know, yeah, he's got that sort of, uh, you know. Uh, Algonquin round table sort of vibe. Oh, so him.
1: he's, yeah, a little, almost, almost like a, a classy
2: or. A, like a Fran Leibowitz yeah. type, uh, you know. He's a,
1: definitely a curmudgeon.
2: A curmudgeon, but like sort of a, a happy curmudgeon. Like oh, a that's sort great. of like a, a generous curmudgeon, you know, and a, a talented curmudgeon. Yeah. And, uh, e- yes, I mean, you know, in the same way that, uh, you know, whatever reputation Elliot Gould also has, you know, sort of yeah like a like an, an asshole and i'm not just well maybe in
1: the seven maybe around this time he did when he made the movie i met Elliot gould about eight eight years ago in fact i introduced him before a screening of little murders at the torino film festival and spent uh an hour just talking alone with him either earlier that night or later that night and uh very 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 sweet guy
2: Right. Well, no. And, and for a long time, Elliot Gould has been on this sort of rehabilitation tour. Where yeah. He's like, I know, you know, and every time Elliot, you hear Elliot Gould talking now, he talks about I was the biggest asshole. Yeah. You know, I think I'm studies. pretty sure he
1: said that <laughs> in my conversations
2: right. with him unprompted. He, he just right. put I, that out there. And, right. And when Elliot Gould talks about Little Murders, he talks about it sort of being the beginning of the end for him. You know, that uh, that that right after Little Murders, he went to do the Bergman film, The Touch. Right which turned into a huge disaster critically and commercially. And, uh, and, and he went from being on the top of the heap of Hollywood stars to being like unemployable. Right. Um, and I, you know, he, I haven't heard him. I haven't heard him get into specifics about the other factors that were going on with him that made, that gave, gave him that turn of, of, of fate, you know, that, that got him from the top to the bottom other than, you know, it, I'm sure it wasn't just that he had a couple of films that didn't do as well. I think a lot of it was his attitude and his.
1: Yeah, that's that's what that's what I hear. But the truth is, is that he was he was a lead, leading man, a viable one, or maybe if not a viable one, but you know, a lead in movies for another ten years, maybe more, twelve, thirteen years. Regularly, every year there was at least one movie. There's a lot of bad movies in there, Altman tries to really put him on top again a couple right. of years after this with Long Goodbye and then California Split. And, right. Uh, and he's got to, you know, plays himself in Nashville. And those are, you know, now revered as like the top of his, you know, his, probably his two best movies. and uh, And then there's, you know, Capricorn One, which is probably even the closest thing he had to a hit movie, right, during those 10 years after M.A.S.H., and, uh, you know, and then it's just, I think it's it, at some point by the early 80s, you know, it's like, well, he's not, this is, you You can't build a movie around this guy anymore. And he's not even a good seventh or eighth or ninth choice to be a leading man. You know, he's, he's, they're not even thinking of him that anymore. And, and he becomes pretty much a kind of character actor by the, by the mid 80s and starts to do TV shows that the original ER, which doesn't take off. and The comedy
2: like sitcom version. Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: Also yeah. with George Clooney. Right. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen an episode of that. I remember they, for some reason, they were one summer, they were rerunning them years after it, the show had been on and canceled. And they were rerunning them during the day, I think, like on network TV, like CBS or whatever channel it was on.
2: But even more interesting about Elliot Gould to me is that his whole – his whole rise to being what he, he what he describes he was the top Hollywood star yeah. in the world was really just based on just two films, Mash and Bob and Carol. And Ted yeah that's Alice. right. Um, so it's it, it's uh, after which or I think, is when he got offered this three or four picture deal with 20th Century Fox right. um, which I think turned into um, what movies. Well,
1: is is uh, getting straight? No, that's a yeah. Sony from Move, oh. move is move. one of them. Yeah, and Little Murders, and then he produced Little Murders. Did he produce Move also? And there was going to be another film in the Little Murders package, right? That never got made. There was like, there were two movies that he was going to. You know, what, what is it, Gould Brodsky Productions? Yeah, Gould Brodsky.
2: So he actually started off as a tap dancer and then he he started off on Broadway uh, right. in sort of musicals which is interesting. I can't I can't remember seeing Have you ever seen Elliot Gould sort of do a straight song and dance number like a like uh where he's really singing?
1: Gosh, no, I don't um no, I mean he he sings a little bit in uh... With George Segal in California Split. I remember that. Right.
2: So in 69, Gould started his own production company with Jack Brodsky, Brodsky-Gould Productions. The company made two films, The Assistant, which is based- No, they were
1: going to make The Assistant. It never got made. Oh. A great novel by Bernard Malamud. I think it eventually got made decades later with, uh, I think, pretty sure, Armand Mueller styles in it, but it right. it's a pretty undistinguished version. Great right. book, though.
2: And Little Murders, which turned into his first film under that production company. Uh, And then they announced, in 70, they announced plans to make The Dick from the novel by Bruce J. Friedman. That was never made. Right. And then that same year, Gold reached a new level of prominence, playing one of the four leads in Mazurski's Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice, um, which was released in September of 69, which was a huge success critically and commercially. Um, And then in in March 69, Gould signed a non-exclusive four-picture contract with 20th Century Fox, first of which was MASH, and the second was MOVE, and those were both released in 70. And then Gould's other films of 70 included the Richard Rush comedy drama Getting Straight, uh, which also starred Candace Bergen as right. his girlfriend. Uh and um uh also released that year was move uh co-starring paul apprentice which was a critical and commercial flop gould's first apparently and i love my wife in 70 with brenda vaccaro uh for which gould had apparently turned down mccabe and mrs miller
1: to do that movie, yeah,
2: and he apparently also turned down the lead in Peck and Paw's Straw Dogs. Could be. So anyway, back to Little Murders. Yeah. Uh, uh, after the successful, so this World Shakespeare Company production was successful, right? And then in '69, Circle in the Square decided they were going to mount a production off Broadway, and they got Alan Arkin to direct their off Broadway production. Um, which, um, starred, uh, I'm trying to remember in a second, I have this stuff cause a lot of that circle and square production featured the cast that wound up, um, in the film, uh, John Corcus, right. Um, who plays Patsy's younger brother, uh, was apparently a student, at the Circle in the Square school. So I guess Circle in the Square was not only a sort of production company for off-Broadway and it was a theater, but it was it also ran an acting school. Yeah. Um and and Arkin used John Corcus as a student to to help him uh, audition actors for for that for Little Murders for the movie. For the for the product for the oh, stage for the, production the off-Broadway production. Right. Had him read with people uh, yeah. all the time and 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 read the part of the of the younger brother in order to you know have audition scenes and um you know probably saw he's arkin says maybe 150 200 actors for for those roles um and by the end of the process had fallen in love with john Corkus's performance as as the younger brother uh and then said i would like you to actually play this role in the production and he says uh John Corcus uh, turned around, walked into a bathroom, and like screamed at the top of his lungs uh, for about a minute in excitement over this development. <laughs> and then he wound up uh, in the film. Uh, John Corcus had an interesting career. He st- His first film
1: was The Out of Towners. Uh, the thing I remembered him for, uh, at least when I watched it again this time you know, I was immediately like, oh, I've seen this guy in something recently, and he's the, I think he's the editor-in-chief in Between the Lines, the Joan Micklin Silver film. Yeah. You know, which I'm a big fan of. Right. I am not. Yeah.
2: <laughs> but he was, he's also, and I can't believe I didn't realize this until I was doing the research, he's also in a film that we both like and are showing later this semester, Two Minute Warning.
1: Yeah, um, we'll have to look for him in there. I, You know, last time I... I, I didn't notice him. I think I
2: could be wrong, but here's what I think. I think he's the guy who David Groh, uh steals a girlfriend from.
1: Ah, uh, okay. The young guy who's that? Yeah, and who is that? It's um, his name is Jeffrey. And yeah, but who's playing the girl? I remember it's like some TV actress, right? Like, yeah,
2: or somebody else in the ca- is she somebody else in the cast's wife? Maybe. Uh, we will look at that later. Yeah. But he was also in Catch Twenty Two. He was in Cinderella Liberty. He was in Day of the Dolphin. Uh, so it's interesting that that it's interesting how many connections there are between these two movies, yeah. even though they're not directed by the same people and they're not produced by the same studio. No, he event.
1: was a theater actor who could clearly, you know, hold his own as a character on screen, and I think people were interested in him, but it just never. He was never in a giant hit. Looks, sounds yeah. like
2: he 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 feels to me, especially in Little Murders, like he's got this sort of young Randy Quaid vibe. Yeah, that's I mean, you, pretty good. You could see Randy Quaid at the same time yeah. doing that role.
1: Yeah.
2: Um. And somebody else, somebody else who had that role, uh, uh, during the off-Broadway run.
1: What's the little brother's name? Is it Denny? No
2: uh Kenny 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 was also played by oh Christopher
1: guest oh that's interesting yeah, yeah
2: the off brought so the this circle in the square production ran for 400 performances and the cast changed over the course of those uh performances so that uh Linda Lavin I th- was was uh Patsy at some point uh,
1: she's a real She's a real analog performer to Marsha Rod, isn't she?
2: Yeah. Um and um I'm trying to remember who else. Uh there were some other interesting actors, but Christopher Guest, I think it was his it was his New York theater debut.
1: Mm. Was, uh, Before as, he joined the National Lampoon troupe, I think. Yeah. By the way, Circle in the Square is now considered a a Broadway venue. It's in the same facility as the Gershwin Theater. Which has been showing wicked for twenty years, but uh, I, this summer I saw uh, Lawrence Fishburne and Sam Rockwell in uh, American Buffalo at Circle in the Square. So it's right there in the heart of Broadway. Um. Oh well, that's that's uh, cool. I don't know. Sad, I, I don't know at one point that happened, but you know. I know they were always attracting big names and that was probably a reason for it. Sure. Getting permanently housed on Broadway. Well, good for them. Good for them. Good for them. Good for them.
2: Let's back up a minute and talk about um, our history with these films or first with Little Murders.
1: Well, I'm kind of interested to hear where you where you think this movie's coming from. I know we talked about the Kennedy assassination and gun violence, but there's, I mean, clearly it, evolved into something more. Well, somebody described it
2: and I can't remember if it's Elliot Gould or Arkin or Pfeiffer probably wouldn't have been Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer Pfeiffer is pretty clear throughout anytime he talks about it, that this, that, you know, it was a, it was supposed to be a statement about a, a, a sort of a, a warning about where he thought America might be heading. Hmm. Um, uh, Uh, A cautionary, you know, a vision of a, a, you know, a dystopian society that he was trying to warn people against. And then, of course, as he says, we got there and then more and that the that the film now in 2022, 23 is as relevant or more relevant and and less of an absurdist film and more of this is this is where we are today.
1: It's it's funny to hear that that's what he's kind of stuck to because um, it reminds me of that you know that famous New Yorker cover where you know how New Yorkers view the rest of the country and was it the country or the world I, I can't remember but you know with the majority of it being New York because it's such a to me it's not about what's going what's happening with the country it's really about how no, New Yorkers view new york during that time you know it's very much because guns don't even really kind of enter the story even until the second half uh well it's about it's about you know how crazy it is to to be in new york at that time it's like this you know it's 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 we we've, uh, we've talked about this before it's that you know it's that the whole list of post you know kitty genovese movies you know that that or just about, you know, how, how chaotic and randomly deadly it is to, to live in New York. You know, the incident and the film it reminds me the most of is Where's Papa? and Yeah, and I,
2: you know, I totally would have thought, you know, if if Pfeiffer had, had said any of that stuff, I would yeah. have been like, yeah, of course, obvious. But he really does stick to his guns about it being about Kennedy and Oswald, and where he saw the countries going, he doesn't talk about New York at all. It's just really. that I mean, that, it's just that's going to be his point of view because he ne- he's never left New York, right? <laughs> right. But the thing that he w- the thing that he was doing was he so he was building his statement. His commentary is about that is about these about how human life has been, you know, the value of human life has been reduced to to almost nothing. And that people don't care about other people anymore, and um, you know that 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 the country uh, you know is full of rage and sadness, and this is how it's going to express that rage and sadness eventually, if not sooner. Um, but he talks about how he what he this what he was trying to do. He was on what he was trying to do specifically with the story and the structure of this uh, of the piece itself. To make that point, he was ca- he was building it as a sort of uh, satire of of Broadway shows at the time uh, that the romantic comedy Broadway shows, which were all about um, bringing home a right. boyfriend to meet the parents right. who's not suitable, and and how this how this how the the family and the situation ends up reshaping the boyfriend or the boyfriend ends up reshaping. Everyone, You know, and I think that that, you know, also dates... He doesn't talk about this, but it's also, you know, all these screwball film comedies of the 30s and 40s where, you know, it's like the, the, you know... You can't take it with you and everything. Right. Um, And that... uh, And I... And this is... I I do love this about the film and the play and everything, um, is that it, you know, it takes you down that path and you think you're watching that kind of a thing and sort of a funnier you know, maybe a more satirical and, and nasty uh, jaded version of that story and then flips it, you know, it's as if uh, three-quarters of the way through some romantic screwball comedy or Broadway show uh, that the, the, the girlfriend is killed. <laughs> yeah. And
1: it goes down this completely other path. That, and I do think... And the, char- and the main character becomes uh, catatonic.
2: Right. Although, interestingly, he, he, the, uh, Gould, Alfred's trajectory is that he's catatonic and she she works, Patsy works to wake him up out of this state that he's in where he doesn't feel anything, he doesn't care about anything, he's completely passive in all things. The, the film starts with Alfred. The film starts, let's talk about this. The film starts... Um, With a shot of patsy in bed and every time i've watched it recently it's reminded me of the opening of samurai did did that occur to you Mm -hmm. at all
1: it's such a similar no i was thinking about where's papa which also begins with the the hero in bed and slowly waking up to the absurdity of uh, his or her daily routine
2: yes and and it does, but I think there's something about the way the shot is framed, with the bed up against the right-hand wall of the frame, and the windows, and the and you know that you're looking at the windows, and you can't even really, you're not even really aware of the person in the bed maybe at first, and then it, you know, you slow the person slowly. That's interesting.
1: Up. Probably unlikely that Alan Arkin saw it though. I don't think it got released in the U.S. until seventy-two or seventy-three. The Samurai. Yeah.
2: Well one interesting one other interesting thing i I think there's lots of interesting things about the production history of this thing is that uh gould purchased the rights to it um reached out to pfeiffer to write a screenplay pfeiffer's like i every time i get involved with this i just screw it up have somebody else write the screenplay god bless you sounds like it's a great idea but but gould uh reached out to gadar uh that was his choice for director and and said Jean-Luc, I want you to make this little murders film. Here's the script for the play. And Godard, according to Gould, uh, wrote back or called him back and said, you know, Charles M. Schultz and Jules Feiffer are like my two favorite writers. Hmm. (laughs) And so this is great. This is right up my alley. And then Gould, more than one time, repeats this uh, story about meeting up with Godard in New York to try to... Uh, sort of uh, finalized the deal uh, and was getting some kind of pressure. At some point he said to Godard, I'm going to need you to, like, be there for me at some point. Like, I'm, I, I'm fighting for you to direct this film and I'm pushing through some, you know, studio stuff. Um, you know, at a certain point, though, I'm going to need sort of a reciprocal thing from you. I'm going to need you to say, like... Uh-huh and Goddard said to him listen you know my wife and kids sometimes ask me to tell them that i love them and i tell them to go fuck themselves <laughs> and uh and that gould said well that's great that's really strong i'm not i'm not really there yet um wow. and that was the end
1: of it yeah, that sounds like a typical Goddardian response um uh, he wasn't about to play any kind of corporate game you know even if Elliot Gould was asking him to, wasn't? But wasn't there an an adaptation submitted by Benton and Newman, Robert Benton and David Newman?
2: I didn't see their names attached, and every time, yeah,
1: maybe that was something else. Maybe. And
2: I've heard Pfeiffer and Gould talk about this and Arkin, uh, that there was a screenplay that was commissioned, and it was terrible, and went right. and and. And and they gave that screenplay to Pfeiffer to say, look, this is what we've got. Yeah, I and think
1: I read it was by Benton and Newman, which is interesting because they wrote Bonnie and Clyde and their their first choice of director was Godard, and then Truffaut and then became Arthur Penn. So
2: Yeah. So when when Pfeiffer saw what a disaster this other screenplay was, he said, Okay, I'll I'll never mind what I said, I'll I'll write the screenplay. And the the changes so the, the the stage production and I have not read the play, but the play all takes place in Patsy's family apartment. That's what I figured. I
1: figured all of that stuff in the movie that shows Patsy and Alfred meeting was written for the movie. That it just probably begins with with Patsy's parents. And...
2: It begins with Patsy, I believe. It begins with the night that she brings Alfred home. Right. Guess who's coming to dinner. Right. This lunatic who takes pictures of shit right. and uh, uh, is basically
1: like, you know,
2: unemotionless.
1: O- already uh, almost catatonic. Right.
2: Um, and and Pfeiffer says that he thought, okay, the, I'll open this up and turn it into a movie by presenting all the stuff that you don't see in the play leading up to that moment. And he says that that, you know that's a big regret that he thinks that that was a mistake, that none of that stuff in the first 18 minutes of the film works particularly well and is interesting or is necessary. Um, uh, He doesn't come out and say like, I would have started it where I started. If I had to do it over again, I would start where I start uh, in the, in the stage production of it. Um, And I think uh, I understand that feeling. I mean, I think that it, that that there's nothing particularly funny about the first eighteen or twenty minutes of the film before we get to um, Patsy's family, but I think it's helpful. I like I like that it's I like that weird that, that I like the openness. I like that there are outdoor scenes. I like the. It's unclear to me. Uh, how much of you know how much of the story of their meat cute and even Pfeiffer says like the, the meat cute in this is that he's getting that Alfred's getting mugged and she comes to rescue him. He runs away and yeah. she gets beat up. Uh, I'm assuming that they tell that story in the play, but I do think it's fun to see that. Um, and I think it's helpful to uh, I, I think it also, I think all these things work. I, mean, I think the whole film is working towards the moment where she is killed you know that that's that's what that's what that's what we're being faked out into not expecting mm-hmm. um and then then that's what we're dealing with uh for you know the last thirty minutes the last thirty minutes and 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 you know Pfeiffer's main objective in writing this piece right. is to is to talk about that
1: yeah shock us and then let us kind of wallow in it for a half an hour all
2: right and then the other so so that's different um also in the stage production alfred does not travel to chicago there isn't that scene with his parents um and then pfeiffer talks about that the third act on stage is much more sort of experimental like what we see in the movie after Patsy is shot is is Elliot Gould's character Alfred going to Central Park, um, you know, in this and, and walk and on the subway. There's all these scenes of him in his blood spattered um, clothes. Um, he has his camera, and apparently, uh, there's a the Central Park scene at the end of the film or towards the end of the film, before he returns back to Patsy's family with the gun, uh, there's a scene that I think was shot uh, that they then cut uh, where Gould ends up beating somebody up in Central Park with his camera. Like, we get to see Gould as crazed, homicidal aggressor uh, before he arrives in the apartment. At some point, they realize it's much more effective... To not have that. And to and so that when he shows up at the apartment with this rifle, it's like, oh, wait, what's going on? And you right. still don't know exactly what Gould has on his mind because you haven't seen him, you know, as an aggressor or as a, a violent sure. person. Uh, so those are the big changes or additions or, you know, variations from the stage production. Um, the thing that I uh, was fascinated to hear... Uh, Pfeiffer talk about was that uh, his vision of Alfred's parents. Uh, he saw them as, uh, and his, you know, his whole when he was writing it and what he thought was going to happen when they cast it. He was thinking of those of that couple as like William Powell and Myrna Loy, much more sophisticated, you know, erudite, like cocktail hour social, and it's and when you wa- and watching the scene uh, with that in mind, uh, you know, and, and, and Arkin and, and those two, and Doris Roberts, and I can't, who, I can't remember who's the guy who plays.
1: John Randolph.
2: Is it John Randolph? Yeah. Uh, it, it's fascinating because they go in a completely other direction with their performances, but which I think uh, gives it a very s- strange quality, that scene.
1: Well, their, their intellectuality, their intellectualism is, a, is there is what they're using to hide from the world with, you know, they've got their, they, you know, they've got examples from literature and cultural history to explain away everything, um, except for, uh, how they raised their son and their relationship to their son to that. They have no memory or, uh, answers for their son. It's, you know, in other words, you're on your own. It's, it's chaos, you know, they can, they can drop, uh, you know, a million names from, you know, everything from, uh, you know, the ancient Greeks to Kurt Vonnegut, but, you know, they, they, it's just, it's just their blanket that they're hiding under.
2: Right. And I, and you also, and it's also, I feel like it must, he must be playing in some way with, uh, ha- um, uh, the McCarthy era, um, the mm. way that they, I, 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 the way that they play it, and the fact that they feel like these New York kind of liberal Jews in a way that that if they'd gotten like Powell and Loy or people like that would have played a whole different way, but when it, it's fun, it's I, the funniest part of the scene to me is is their reluctance to talk to a tape recorder that they don't want right. themselves <laughs> recorded, and it seems like. What they settle into is like that they don't want to answer these questions and they start and it's true it works both ways. It works in showing them as complete failures as parents, but it also is this very funny, I think, thing where they keep saying, I don't remember. Right. I don't remember. I don't remember. Um which you know He's makes the fifth. Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's that's what it feels like to me in the in the movie as well. So where were we? Well so Oh, so these differences so so I, you know, we were talking the other day, and you were talking about, uh, and I would say that I think that I think that it's safe to say that I like this movie more than you do. Yeah, and that you might like *Carnal Knowledge* more than I do. Could be. We'll get into it. Um, but I would say that that when I watch this film, the absurdist. I looked up "absurdist" to figure out if I'm understanding the word the way. Yeah, and and
1: I have a different take on even that that I talked to you about the other day. I, I, I think I think I've realized what it is that I that bugs me the most about Little Murders, and I, and you know, and it's 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 to me an easy enough to watch film, but you know, I, we were talking, and I said, I, I feel like that kind of absurdist comedy where, you know, completely surreal. Stuff happens; it's hard to take. But of course, you know, I'm wrong about that because I love, you know, the Zucker brothers and some of those Woody Allen films from the same time, and the Marx brothers, and you know, that stuff's great. Um, it's it's it, it, it's when it's a certain kind of stage play uh, that that I think, you know, it's when they try and do it on film, it 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 doesn't always translate well. But that's not what I think is the overriding problem with Little Murders Uh, or with Carnal Knowledge. And I think I have the same problem with most films, but I think with Carnal Knowledge, it's relieved a little bit by what Mike Nichols brings to it. Um, We can talk about that later. But as as far as Little Murders goes, um, I just feel like it's it's an angry movie... uh, that is piling shit onto characters without any kind of relief as if they're not really people that they're just, you know, c- characters you can do this to and we're not supposed to feel anything for them except maybe pity. Uh, and that is very condescending to me. I just feel like there's a lot of screaming and a lot of, you know, hysteria and, and anger and, um, and I and and it just feels kind of uh, unrelieved. I mean, there are some movies that are angry that I like. I'll tell you another film that that I, that it immediately made me think of that I'm an outlier and disliking. Uh, big film of the '70s is Network, um, and I love in Network. I love the absurdity of the of the opening half hour. or So all the crazy stuff that goes on with Peter Finch and where then where the network goes with the shows and stuff. I, I absolutely hate the end of the film with all the monologues and the speeches and the screaming and like the movie becomes about like, uh, old William Holden being angry with Faye Dunaway because she likes TV. You know, it's like, it feels like a very like angry old New York white man movie, you know? Um, and, uh, and so in, in, uh, in Little Murders, you know, the, the Alan Arkin's performance is strange. I really hate Lou Jacoby screaming at, the, at them. It just feels, like, really obvious and dragged out and just kind of depressing, you know? You know, Roger Ebert had a lot of these little... And Roger Ebert loved Little Murders and Network, I think, too. But he had a lot of these little phrases, some of which I completely reject. But the one I always really liked is that there are no... Uh, or, the, you know, uh, all, uh, sorry, all depressing movies are bad. Uh, or all bad movies are depressing. Any movie that's depressing is not good, you know. So when people say, oh, that movie is depress- so depressing, but it's really good. It's like, no, well, no. if it's truly honest, um, you know, I don't think there's anything depressing about it. And when I see Little Murders, I just feel like, eh, it feels a little loaded you know where's papa is the movie that you know where's papa with the with the original ending is is you know maybe going too far but you know when you let trish Vandeveer and george siegel drive off at the end um it feels like yeah that's that's where you want this movie to go there's some you know there's some hope there's you don't feel like there's some god-like figure piling crap on top of these characters, you know, and, um, you know, I don't, uh, you know, I just feel, I just feel depressed when I watch Little Murders. I, I like, I like, I really like the idea of taking of, th- you know, the classic screwball comedy and something like you can't take it with you and turning it on its head and bringing it into, you know, and that must've been fun. And, and I still think the movie is worth seeing and, and I think it's fun in the context of, you know, what, what seventies movies were doing, but it's a bit of a drag. Yeah. Uh, I hear
2: that. I don't agree. I don't, I, that's not what I take from it. I do. I do think that the difference I love, where's Papa? I think I, I enjoy it a lot more than I do little murders, but I also fully enjoy little murders and think it works like gangbusters, with whatever, with everything that's it's doing, um, I think that maybe it's wrong to label Little Murders, which it usually is, as like a comedy, even of any kind. I think there are very funny performances in it, and very and some very funny moments. And I agree with you. I I don't understand Alan Arkin's performance. Um, he was he didn't want to do it. Yeah, uh, he really was like uh, you know up until almost the day that they shot the scene he's like i you know i'm so busy directing this film i haven't had a chance to really figure
1: out this character i don't want to do it he almost seems to be cracking up at times he almost seems to be he's just not committed
2: well here's the here's his story is that the issue the issue one of the big issues was he had a lot to say you know it's really you, you get There are the characters. They're the main characters in the movie: Alfred and Patsy, and Patsy's family. uh, Carol, the father, played by Vincent Gardenia, in it. And maybe this is the maybe this is the divide. I think you either love Vincent Gardenia in this movie and think it's one of the great comic performances, or just performance and the best you've ever seen Vincent Gardenia do anything, or that it doesn't work for you.
1: He's very funny. I like him very much. Although I, I like his one scene in Where's Papa even more.
2: Yeah, oh, that's great too.
1: But um, but
2: other than and 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 um, uh, Patsy's mother and Patsy's brother. I'm sorry, who's the actress who plays Patsy's mother? Elizabeth Wilson. Elizabeth Wilson, who I think is fantastic. In yeah, this movie she's too. good. She
1: she gets the final moment of the film too.
2: But the structure of the movie is aside from those characters, everyone everyone else you encounter has got one scene. You know, they they come on, they do a monologue. Yeah, and I'm talking about Lou Jacoby, who I also think so. Yeah. Lou Jacoby, I that's a performance and that's a scene that i think watching at home by yourself is really can be really annoying Yeah. but when we sh- so we showed little murders at cinematech a couple weeks ago and that that scene got the biggest laughs hmm. uh of the night from the audience that plays really really well in in, in 2022 um in wisconsin uh <laughs> an audience that de- I don't know. There were certainly very mixed reactions to the film in general uh, by this audience, but that that was a scene that everyone seemed to love, and it and it plays really well um, in a theater. So that's nice. So there's Jacoby, There's Donald Sutherland as the sort of hippie.
1: Yeah, who I think is very funny. That that that, that monologue also played is pretty really great. well. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's good because you, you, they play it off the off the crowd quite a bit you know that's actually a pretty well-directed scene that you know that he's just you know it's it's not it's not playing so absurd like you can believe he would like a hippie kind of you know non-denominational reverend would give exactly this kind of flip-floppy non-committed speech and just completely puzzle everybody Marsha Rod's reaction is the best. She's kind of like nodding her head and smiling, but you can tell her eyes are just going all over the place. Like she doesn't know where he's going.
2: Yeah. And she can't even, and her, you know, she's so appalled by it ultimately that she can barely take her vows. You know, she doesn't really, you know, say what she's supposed to say. She she can't even get the words out. It's the first time that she's at a loss for words in in the movie. I mean, the only time she's at a loss for words. Um, but, but then Alan Arkin also has this one scene which is basically a monologue where he's uh, in a way so, – so Alan Arkin, uh, one of the things he said was that there was a lot of dialogue for him to learn this yeah. whole speech and he couldn't do – he was walking around the block over and over again the night before the thing and he couldn't remember it. And then he decided to just use that. And so when you see his character sort of like stop in the middle of a sentence and just say like nonsense yeah. syllables and things that's that's Arkin using the fact that he couldn't really remember all of the lines uh, and using that in the in the thing. I don't think it works. yeah, I think he's over the top and he's absurdist and over the top in a way that nobody else in the movie is and what I what I what I wanted to say. Uh, for the last ten or fifteen minutes, hearing you talk is that, despite Pfeiffer denying it, and me saying, "Yeah, it's about the country, it's about New York," I do think that maybe, maybe another thing that separates us is, is that this movie, this movie, so many of the details and so many of the characterizations ring perfectly true to me. Growing up in New York, that yeah. families that were living, you know, four people and 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 and. You know, in New York, rents were always so high that you didn't, you never moved out of your your family dwelling. And if you were, and, there, and I knew plenty of kids whose families were living in apartments, m- much like Patsy's family apartment in this. All of the furniture is like, oh, God, yes, I remember all this stuff. All these sort of Avon bottles and
1: yeah.
2: tchotchkes. And that... Interestingly, that apartment is not an actual apartment. That is a set that they built in a New York soundstage, um, but it looks—you would never know. It's—it's it's beautiful. I, I think every detail of the bric-a-brac and the furniture and the layout and the lighting—that reminds me of my childhood and the way that people talk to each other in families and and you know amongst family and friends, the yelling the it, it only seems like the most slight exaggeration of people that I knew in New York the fathers that were like that, mothers that were like that, brothers and sisters who were like that. um
1: it's not that yelling that upsets me it's the it's more of the Lou Jacobian and then later on Arkin right
2: yeah uh, and and I and I'm with you on Arkin
1: uh like I'm know, not crazy about the Ned Beatty screaming speech and network either. I know that's everybody's favorite but you know it just seems to me like. Ah, Shut up.
2: Well, I'm excited to talk to you about the Nicholson screaming and carnal knowledge yeah. later on.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> uh, but anyway, so I, I, you know, it's it 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 doesn't strike me as absurdist. May, maybe it would have a little bit more had I seen it in '71 and been, you know, of age. Maybe I would have thought like this is, and and it is true that New York did feel like that, like that 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 there was danger around every corner and that you, you know, it was really a a scary place to live as much as much life and vibrancy was going on. There was an equal amount of, you know, filth and, and anger and, and um, fear, fear and, and, and poverty, which led to all kinds of, of bad situations. I, uh, my friend and I were, walking just a couple blocks from my house in brooklyn and i was probably 10 or 11 and we got mugged by uh a group of maybe 13 or 14 year old girls (laughs) they like (laughs) jumped us and and forced us to hand uh our i think we had like digital watches like these you know casio whatever They, they they took our watches from us um but that was scary You know, they were, like, choking us out and all kinds of stuff. And then I remember another time uh, my friend Chad and I were in Times Square. Uh, We'd gone into the city to see, I think, I'm sure we must have been there to see a movie. But we were wandering around Times Square looking um, in the window of, like, an electronics store. um, And some guy came up to Chad and said, um, hey, I'm selling, I got joints. Uh, i'll sell you a joint for a buck and you know, we, again we were like 13 years old nobody was smoking we weren't looking to smoke yeah. joints or anything and chad was like no no thanks and the guy was like well do i got to beat the money out of you <laughs> and uh so chad coughed up a dollar and uh, this guy like threw it what maybe it was a joint and so i don't even know if it qualifies maybe it's just like a hard sell you know it wasn't <laughs> not, not quite a mugging um and then my house was, uh, and I didn't live and in you an didn't, apartment. You, wait,
1: you just you left the joint. Yes,
2: yeah, so he just left the joint on the guy like, threw it on the ground, and we didn't touch it. Oh, okay, and, yeah, don't even know. What no it was. fun. No fun. We were not fun. We were not fun or funny. That's the thing about growing up in New York. When I would talk to uh, relatives, like I had relatives who grew up in a small town in Oxford, Ohio, um, and hearing their experiences growing up, like I would go visit them in the summertime, and the things that they got involved with with drugs and alcohol and sex um i was amazed because none of that stuff was happening with me and my friend group in in brooklyn um you know which i'm not saying certainly wasn't the case for everyone growing up at that time in new york but i always felt like there was so much going on so much to do that we weren't looking we weren't we were never bored and so we were never looking to explore things to explore anything forbidden because there was so much to do that we were allowed to do or that we had access to do it didn't
1: and you could you could uh you could explore those those forbidden things virtually and vicariously just by seeing movies and everything that was around you and just participating in the you know yeah
2: i I didn't do i mean i'm not talking about sex but i I didn't do any of that other stuff until i moved to the midwest like (laughs) when i arrived in madison not only was everyone who was already here like, what do you mean? You don't, what are you talking about? You don't drink beer and you don't smoke pot. And I'm like, uh, you know, I was like 40 years old before any of that <laughs> stuff kicked in, um, which is what I always try to tell my kids. I'm like, you know what? I, I made it to 40 without doing this stuff. You don't need to be doing anything I need so it at age 17. Um, anyway, they're not taking my advice, uh, <laughs> which is fine. Um, right. So they may, so, so, so to me, like, it, it's a, it's, it feels real to me, and, and and I really do quite enjoy that 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 mashing up of theatricality, Broadway or Off Broadway. Like you know, people, some people who came out of the screening that we had uh, of Little Murders said to me, "Imagine how much more powerful this is as a stage production, and how much more affecting it would be if you're watching it." And I. I don't. I mean, maybe it is. I can't picture it in my mind. To me, this is the perfect marriage of this theatricality in the writing and in the performances, and the grittiness of seventies of Gordon uh, of Gordon Willis's, you know, amazing, beautiful cinema. I think it's a beautiful looking film. Uh, uh, The grain and and those New York locations, you know, that either they constructed or are actually shooting on location. Both. Like I think that that. That's a vibe that I am totally into.
1: I accept that and uh I just you know and the one thing you left out is the direction, which I think is only adequate. I think you know Pfeiffer and Willis and the actors are really you know given it given it they're all but Arkin as a both as a performer and as a director is only adequate I think he's 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 you know, and I really like Alan Erkin a lot, but, I, you know, as, as an actor, but I think I think here it's, it, it, I think it would, I think it does, in order to make it really stand out as a movie and really special cinematic experience as opposed to, you know, just one of many, you know, very interesting films that came out around that time that are worth seeing would have been having somebody like Godard do it who would really play up the kind of deconstruction of the, of the of the stage and film tropes and you know and probably cut in you know clips of mao and things like that <laughs> right sure. which i feel would
2: make would make the film more dated now and and, probably. and and less less interesting like i feel like that film still feels fresh and still feels shocking i do think it's a shocking film even in 2022 i think that when i think her the her her murder is is and and I would and I would say, yeah, most of the film, the directing, the, the you know, where they're putting the camera and what they're doing is maybe undistinguished. But I would point to two things and they're both like right next to each other. But Elliot Gould's monologue about his um when he comes back from Chicago and he's sitting at the table and he's talking about being in college and being investigated by the government yeah. who started reading his mail. A strange story. I'm not even quite sure what it is he's trying to convey. Yeah, that's
1: one of those things that I think Gould delivers it well. But that's one of those things where it's like it's it's Pfeiffer going on some kind of rant that, like you say, like you don't know where he's coming from. Like it just seems like kind of uh, you know impossible to wrangle anger. You know, just right. And I think it's me. It's Gould's character
2: maybe trying to explain I me. Mean, she wants to know, Alfred, wh- how did you wind up this way? I, why are you so passive? Why are you so right incredible why how did, why are you so shut down? And she thinks it, it she'll get he'll get the answers from his parents, which I think he kind of does. Yeah, but beyond that, he, you know, he he has he has so er- removed them from his life and erased all memories of childhood. But he does have this other thing in his head, and I think he's trying to offer her this other, story about how the, the the things that he's gone through that have made him what he is today maybe, but I'm saying the choice of shooting that in one long take and the lighting and the fact that you don't even see, you see Marsha rods the back of her, her head. I think some people don't even realize she's in the frame for most of that um, shot. I think that's a, uh, you know, and, and, and some of that's Gordon Willis, but I think that that's a very interestingly and well, directed
1: i agree and it's and it's maybe even you know it's it's worth comparing that to how nichols does some of the key scenes in carnal knowledge too and and it's less showy i think in little murders and it's uh it's a well-done scene Uh, you know as as written i feel it just is not as good as the writing in carnal knowledge but it's it, it it's maybe, it's maybe something to point to for you know if if Arkin was involved in that deciding how to how to shoot that but it, you know I'll, I'll, I'm 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 more likely to give credit to Gordon Willis on that
2: sure and then really the the very next thing that happens is her assassination and I think the shot of them lying in a pool of blood and her dead body on top of Goulds and the way Gould you know, has to extricate himself and pull himself from out from under her and then crawls into that corner. I think that that's another really great shot. Yeah. Really devastating. And the sound design, uh, the fact that there is no scoring, uh, really, there's not a lot of scoring in the film at all, but the fact that there's really, they don't use music at all mm-hmm. uh, for the next probably 10 minutes of the film. You know, that scene goes into... Him on the subway, which I also think is a really uh, powerful series of sh- of, of shots. Of- yeah,
1: I think it's a little too long. I feel like it's it's kind of obvious, and especially in light of movies that are already out, like "Where's Papa" and the incident. I feel like it it just it feels really. Dragged out and and really the last half hour of the film until the final five minutes when you know they they bring the gun back. It's not it's not interesting to watch a catatonic character. It's 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 he's passive enough for the first part of the film, but he's he's Elliot like Gould and has a certain charm and humor to it. But just watching him walk around kind of blankly, it just feels like the movie you know is saying you know. This is serious, and we know it's serious. It should be, it should be serious enough when Patsy gets shot, you know, and you're just completely shocked. But right, a half an hour of walking around shell shocked is not. Uh...
2: Well, you know what works for me, and I, and another thing that w- I mentioned to you briefly uh, a few days ago I- is that I am invested in their story and in Gould's character, and I am wondering. I mean, I think it's all built to have the audience wonder what is going on you know we've been on this journey with him we've seen this guy who was in a semi coma passive state was finally brought out you know able to experience some emotion and is just at the point where he is opening back up to the world and then his world is completely destroyed yeah just at that moment and i think You know, if you're if you are emotionally invested in his character, despite the fact that it's not you know that it's not a particularly well developed character, but if but if you can, you know, put your own stuff in there, like I seem to have been able to with this film, um, then you're wondering what is what is his reaction going to be? Is this a movie where he's going to then shut down? And then I think it's another sort of like shocking surprise as to where he is going in his right. head. Um, so you're either on that journey with him or you're not. And I I, I think it's totally, um, I think that plenty of people are not on that journey and watching this film and are like, you at that point are just bored because you're not.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's, there's something to be said about having such a passive character to begin with and then, you know, that you should be asked to care about him, you know, um, De Niro goes through something kind of similar in Taxi Driver, but you know somehow, Travis Bickle, despite his uh, homicidal slaughter at the end, you know, is somebody you still are concerned with and care right. about.
2: Right, and as we sort of as we sort of move into carnal knowledge, that's another thing where for me, I wind up finding. Just about every character in Little Murders to be more interesting and sympathetic, and 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 a character that I'm that I care about in some way, um, as opposed to Carnal Knowledge, which to me is a movie where I don't care about any of these people, or the people that I care about. We are the women who, for the most part, we get to see for a little while, and then they're out of the picture. Yeah, um, and we really
1: only see them, you know, through the through the eyes of the Nicholson and Garfunkel characters, you know, and it's not and, and and we were kind of forced to accept their ultimate perspectives on them.
2: Well, and I think that maybe the Just excep- not kind. Right. But I think the exception is the Candace Bergen character. And as you and I talked about before, like neither one of us are Candace Bergen fans at all. I have never been able to enjoy her in anything, but I do think she's great in this movie. I do, too. And I do think I like her in this and I like her in starting over a lot. Mm. And I think her character is, is is pretty fully formed and maybe it's the fact that she's the one woman who we get to see more than anyone else through both of their eyes. And so we get a, a, a fuller picture of her because we're getting we're getting her we, she's got a lot of real scenes with both Garfunkel and with Nicholson and you know, in a way that Ann Margaret doesn't really with Garfunkel. At all. I don't know that we ever have any dialogue between Anne Margaret and Garfunkel.
1: No, he's just hovering over her on the bed at the <laughs> towards the end of it. Yeah. Maybe I want to complete my thought on this on the Candace Bergen character. Oh, go ahead. With uh incarnal knowledge, which is you know, she she is possibly the most likable character in the movie. And yet, you know, what's clear by the end is that she's never, well, it's not entirely clear, but it's, it's suggested that she's never, she's gone and married Art Garfunkel and never told him that she's slept with Jack Nicholson. And, uh, you know, and carry and was carrying on with him the whole time. And, you know, that, could, that could very well be one of the reasons why you know, their marriage didn't work out. Yes, and,
2: and that makes sense. I, I haven't seen this anywhere, and uh, this is only my one interpretation of the movie as a whole, which is that Jack Nicholson's character is this poison that infects everyone around him. Uh, from the get
1: go, and you know, I think that's I think that's fair. I think, uh, yeah, I, I was I was coming at it when I watched it again yesterday. Um, from the point of view that he that from from exactly that point of view, he he is poisonous, but he's also he's not Satan either. He's not the devil. He is in the witches of Eastwick. You know, he's um, he's more. Uh, more human than that. He's you know, failable and and susceptible to, uh, 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 at least subconsciously bouts of compassion and, you know, uh, for people if we don't if we don't see them see that in his in and anything he does on screen, you know, um, he you know he is, uh, you know he's he's trying to keep a relationship going at least with Anne Margaret and he ends up marrying her you know probably out of pity and that ends up you know making him more poisonous yeah but he's so i mean we never you're right but we never see
2: him as anything but poisonous he's yeah. a he's a complete asshole from the first time we see him basically until the end of the movie we never see i uh, you know i get I, I, I mean may, maybe we're supposed to interpret some of the some of the things that he puts Garfunkel through
1: as as helpful, yeah. uh, as, as, as a friend, but... Not really. It's it, usually to, to his own advantage. And The
2: one thing I'll say, you know, I want to I play a game of what was playing uh, the week of Little Murders uh, before we really go into, and, and maybe I'll move this over at some point, but the, the one thing that struck me watching it, I watched it again yesterday, and I hadn't seen it for a while. Um, is that we've been? I think we've both been living for years with uh, Howard Stern playing the clip of Nicholson blowing up at, at right. Margaret, as,
1: as as you know, offered as pure hysterical humor. You know, just yeah, right. But what that clip doesn't
2: do, and what I had to be reminded of, um, if I'd even if I'd registered it when I used when I'd seen the movie before, is that 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 she responds to that, and she's not taking she's not particularly uh she's not devastated or wounded hearing her response which is she she's laughing she's smiling and saying well uh well, you're making it you know now it's really hard to resist wanting to marry you like she you know she's in on the nonsense of what he's saying it, it, it that conversation i mean it's it is mostly a monologue but it plays differently in the context of the film that does when howard stern just plays his rant right not a lot differently, but enough that it's like, okay, you know, the, the, this scene doesn't... I mean, it's weird because <laughs> I'm saying this. The scene does end with her attempting to commit suicide right. in a way. But but it also feels less harsh in the context. In, in in looking at her and being able to see her and hear the few words that she says in reaction, it, it's more like this is a dinette. She knows he's full of shit and, and in, in a way that you you don't get when you're just hearing him
1: yeah and and you know uh, again my problem with the movie is this is the same problem with little murders it's like it's it's jules pfeiffer saying you know uh that relationships between men and women and 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 Throwing sex in there are just it just makes everything impossible, and uh, it's 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 a it's a kind of a miserablest point of view, but for some reason it doesn't feel um, well not for some reason I, mean, I think for a very specific reason which is the kind of the, the form formalism of the film. Um, and, the, and the, and the performances, especially Nicholson's kind of brings it to a more kind of human level where it doesn't feel as, uh, allegorical and representative of, of humankind as Little Murders does. It feels like this is a very, very specific film about a very specific person. And he really is the, the focus of the film. I mean, he really is the main character. And as you say, it's this poison that comes from him that we know, we don't really know where it comes from. Although I guess he's just always had this kind of, you know, man-child attitude towards women. Why don't you give me what I want and, and, and continue to, you know, be, be what I want you to be. Yeah.
2: See that. And I think that that might be a difference that you and I have about this performance in this character, like I find him to be the most irredeemable and unpleasant protagonist or main character in a film that I can think of. Um, and I don't, I don't, I mean, I recognize him as human. I do believe that there are people that are like that. Um,
1: Especially very specific kind of, you know, guy going, to, I assume from the, from the timeline of the film that he's, you know going to college just after the war so they didn't, they weren't they didn't fight and uh and you know coming of coming of a becoming 40 by 1970 71 and you know and that and this is what this is what his attitudes towards women and sex are going to be you know
2: but i find i think i even have more sympathy for daniel day lewis's character and there will be blood than i do for for yes. Nicholson's
1: character in this movie, yeah, it's uh, it's he, he he is hard to like, I suppose. Um, you know, anything that I find redeemable just all comes from Nicholson's personality. You know, he's just just think he's a great movie star, and you know, he's someone you want to watch. He's fascinating. I you
2: know. think, um, you know, I guess the other. I think the thing that I can hold on that 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 does interest me more. I mean, yes, it's true. It's, I mean, you know, you can't take your eyes off of Nicholson, and I think he's always great to watch. Uh, but but I think that that maybe the may, maybe another way to look at the movie is in the is it's the tragedy of Art Garfunkel's character. Um, I do find Art Garfunkel in the college years. I find his character to be. You know, sympathetic and naive in a charming way, and sort of happy-go-lucky in a in a in a way, and 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 then by the end of the movie, he's as as I say, like been infected by this Nicholson poison, and is just as unpleasant and miserable. You know, more or less uh, as Nicholson's character, Infe-
1: infected by his poison in more ways than he knows, at least until the very end. Yeah, uh,
2: but the other thing. Um, about Nicholson, um, I remember the reaction, some of the reaction to his performance when it was first released in The Shining, and the complaints about that movie and about Nicholson was that you know he's, you don't see the arc. Uh, uh, Jack Torrance is a is a is a miserable creep yeah. from the get go, and yeah. so. The whole idea of Stephen King's novel, which is that this hotel is somehow infecting his character and and drawing on his weaknesses, you don't ever get to see the the early Jack, the, the early Jack, the more
1: sympathetic. Yeah, and and Kubrick's defense for that, I remember. I think Spielberg had the same reaction to Nicholson, and Kubrick countered it with, "No, it's 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 Nicholson. It's just it's just the." the charm behind the guy you can see somebody who you know has positive qualities just because it's jack nicholson you know and he compared it to like james cagney playing you know the public enemy or some of those gangster characters where he was just you know shooting people all the time but because he was so dynamic and charismatic you could say no there's something there's something about this guy that's good or redeemable but I think that the
2: but my point is that the criticisms of of Nicholson in The Shining and then later on in uh, a few, uh, what is it a few good men what what's the what's the yeah, one where he's a few the good men team? few good men yeah. you know his sort of over the topness um, like I think like somebody should have or could have pointed to this and said well what's the difference between this this character and this performance and Carnal Knowledge like here we are in seventy one and he's already you know, unsympathetic in most ways from the get-go and also delivering these monologues in a completely over-the-top way. I mean, I think that, you know, I don't know whose idea it was, uh, uh, who takes the credit or the the blame for the way he delivers the big monologue to Anne-Margaret in this movie, which is screaming at the top of his lungs, totally out of control. But I can see it as written, I can see a completely different reading of that monologue. That sure. that scene could be played in an entirely different way by a different actor.
1: Well, I don't know what kind of direction he was given, but it seems to me that, you know, he's a man-child. He's a baby. He's becoming a baby at that moment, you know. Yeah. Screaming at his at his mother, you know. Yeah. That's I mean, that's that's what's going on. And that's and that's that's funny. You know, the movie's often described as a dark comedy or, you know, or Some kind of satire, you know, but I just see it as kind of, if not a Jules Pfeiffer rant, then of, you know, Jules Pfeiffer's honest kind of, or attempt to be honest exploration about this type of character who I'm sure he saw all around him. I'm sure that's what his inspiration. Yeah. For the script was. Well, and-
2: it's, it's another interesting movie in that it's called a comedy, but I don't know, I don't know. I don't no. I don't know that it is. I don't know that either one like if you compare the the three movies that Mike Nichols made before this movie, oh, yeah. it's not a comedy compared no. to those. It's not it's not a comedy in the way that the gra- even the graduate. Graduate
1: is a has this ambiguous ending and you know and certainly loads of satire and you know about Southern California living at that time and, and and youth culture and all this stuff, but it's a very funny movie. It's it's got a lot of laughs and most of which come out of Dustin Hoffman's reactions to things. Um, but no, I don't I don't feel like carnal knowledge is. But but what the other thing I think that redeems it and makes it a more interesting film than Little Murders is the direction and is this idea. It's funny because it's it, there there's. There's very few scenes, right? It's a lot of, like, long scenes. It feels, in its own way, it feels more play-like than the movie of Little Murders does. But it, but... Well, also because, and I didn't
2: I didn't focus on this and figure out if this is true, but it's almost, if it's not entirely just every scene, like, one long take, it mostly is. Most of the scenes are shot as a single
1: long yeah, take. Yeah, long takes, medium, medium shots or close-ups. And that's the, and, and but, but every, everything is... Pretty interesting. I, I I like some of Mike Nichols films very much. I tend to think of him as generally overrated. But I think here he has real control over the material and a visual scheme for the whole movie that carries through from beginning to end. And, uh, and I think what f- feels cinematic about it are, are those close ups. The idea that you know you can play a, a whole scene that's you know between three people and just have it be on Candace Bergen's laughing face in the one scene, or Jack Nicholson watching Candace Bergen and Art Garfunkel as they're ready to take off together. Um, uh, and and only and then later on, only show Anne Margaret at certain times when he's when he's giving his rant. There's always, there's something very interesting. It's it's maybe a little showy, but I, I like, I like, I like it in this film. And I also like the, uh, the condensation of, uh, or the condensing of, uh, events, you know, so you have these, you know, these, uh, the film is very structured and I love the almost Kubrickian and by Kubrickian, I guess I mean, 2001, you know, leaps in, in, in time, uh, something that Paul Thomas Anderson does later on and There Will Be Blood and you know and and Kubrick was very important to to uh Mike Nichols at this time, as was Fellini, which is why he uses Fellini's cinematographer Giuseppe Rotono. Um but but it's it's I, I I really like the formality of the film. As I've gotten older, I find it uh, a much more sour film than I did when I was younger. I don't know when you first saw this movie, but I was 13, almost 14, in Spain, my first trip to Europe with my junior high class. We went to three or four cities in Spain, and in the last three days, we were in Madrid. And it was me and we had two other roommates, uh, two other 13-year-old boys in a Madrid hotel room watching this on a pan and scan black and white TV and I don't think we saw the whole thing, but I remember tuning it in from like towards the end of the college sequence, and then through the end of the movie, and and uh, it was it was great to see as a thirteen year old. And then I then I saw it a couple years later on VHS when we got our first VCR. We didn't have a VCR until I was like sixteen, and and I had an LP tape for years that I had dubbed putting two VCRs together of uh, Carnal Knowledge and The Graduate, both in the horrible pan scan versions
2: well yeah i was thinking for both of these movies i was aware of them and saw bits of them on tv before i ever actually caught up to seeing them in their entirety or unedited Um, but it's interesting that these movies were shown on tv at all little murders i remember being sort of on late night New York TV every once in a while. Carnal Knowledge, I feel like, a bigger deal was made out of its network premiere or, net or or at least network screenings. I don't think that it was shown. I'm pretty sure it was shown heavily edited. Sort of unlike, I remember um, the last, pic, the la- last detail mm. being shown on network TV, and they made a big deal out of the fact that they were going to leave it all, all the language intact. Although I oh. think that they lowered the volume significantly no for the swear words, but they were announcing, like, yeah, we're showing this. Oh, I didn't as I did they meant did that. Yeah. Carnal knowledge, I don't think, got that kind of treatment.
1: And so, you know. I think it's the first Hollywood film with the C word, I think. Sure. I read, which which shocked a lot of people. Yeah.
2: I mean, and and I had that same, you know, as a kid, Mike Nichols, to me, was, I don't think I ever put him in, uh, on a list with hitchcock or spielberg but i know in my head i was like this guy is one of the showiest and in my, and, and and for me that meant great yeah. great directors who, who thinks visually and and his shots and it was all about the graduate it was like these are the wittiest most cleverly conceived sequences you know as far as the visuals and i just you know i thought like the scene where dustin hoffman is uh in the scuba suit walking through the party and and diving by i said this yeah. is the most brilliant thing that's ever been concocted on screen and i do think that the that what makes that what makes carnal knowledge sometimes feel like it's a comedy even though it isn't is all about nichols and the way he's staging these scenes the the wit of the film is all about where he's putting the camera and how he's moving people through it yes, and what you're yes. seeing and not seeing and
1: that's absolutely, I think that's that's really right on. I, you know, the other thing about it, comparing it to Little Murders again, is Mark Harrison, his biography of uh, Nichols that just came out recently, talks about the reactions to the film being one way or the other, either this doesn't, uh, mostly the reviews that were negative were like, this does, this movie does not do anything to condemn this behavior. It just, you know, shows it as it is, and or accepts us, expects us to, to to like them. And Pauline Kael had the opposite reaction. She said, uh, "What I felt about Little Murders, which is the the movie is piling on misery onto these people and doesn't doesn't allow them to be human, uh, and doesn't uh, you know is just just a just a miserableist movie." that uh, is condemning them too much, you know? Right. Um, I I think they're probably both a little bit off. Uh, I feel, I feel like, you know, um, because it's Nicholson and, and, and the other performers, I think we're asked to, you know, like them a little bit more than, than, than we do. And I think Nichols style helps take away from that feeling of, of, uh, You know, being asked to pity these characters too—that they're that they're you know, um, you know—they have all this stuff piled on them, or you know, know, by the writer and director. I think it's just—I think it's them. I think I think the actors make them feel a lot more human. And when when I when I watch Little Murders, I feel like that kind of like that. You know, oh, don't we? Aren't we supposed to pity? Alfred and Patsy, you know, and if, and that, like I said, I think feels condescending. You know, a director who gets compared to Mike Nichols a lot because he started in the stage and came out with these, you know, all-American movies is Sam Mendes. And mm. there's a guy who I consistently feel his, uh, you know, his all-powerful hand and and his and his expectations that we feel pity for these characters. But
2: on the same at this and I and I think you're right. And I, think and, people, and I
1: just feel like he's being condescending.
2: Yes. I also think he's never come up with a single shot or sequence that's as visually clever or witty as anything that Mike Nichols did in those early films. Agreed. I, I think that um and I and I think this is this is probably deliberate and I think that you're supposed to feel this way, but I find the first twenty minutes or half hour of the film, the college years, to be so much more entertaining and uh, quickly, tightly paced. Yeah, it's a lot
1: more going on. There's a bunch. Of, there's a bunch of scenes. It's a, it's there's a
2: bunch of scenes. They all end sort of before you think they're going to. They don't mm-hmm. really. It's interesting because they don't. They don't land on punchlines. These scenes, which is another reason why I don't really think this film is a comedy. Um, but it's still, like, the pacing is, like, you're right. There's, they're telling, like, a story and with, with much shorter scenes, even though, again, they're all sort of these one-shot scenes. Yeah. And then the film really slows down uh, after that and only sort of, for me, comes alive in an in a, in a energetic way with, with Nicholson's rant.
1: Yeah. Um, What's striking is that, is that kind of juxtaposition of the short scenes and then these, these long takes and these jumps in time. Where you know you're asked to figure out between what's what's being said and and the hair the, the hairlines on Nicholson and Garfunkel, you know how, how much older they are and what's going on.
2: Well, that's I mean, uh, other than you know some slightly questionable hair pieces in, in the college years. I'm not sure. Yeah. I guess Garfunkel's wearing something too. Maybe. Yeah,
1: he's he's much more convincing as an eighteen, nineteen year old, yeah. twenty year old than Nicholson is. Just, just looks wise, you know. But Nicholson brings a, a certain kind of you know, wise guy energy to it that feels like a college guy that he loses oh, later on. Absolutely. And yeah. so
2: I I looked up how old these actors were in seventy, assuming yeah. that this was around when they shot it. Nicholson was thirty three. Yeah. Garfunkel was twenty nine. Yeah. Bergen was twenty four. And Anne Margaret was
1: twenty nine. Yeah, well, that makes sense. You 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 show characters who you portray over a period of twenty years, and you cast them in the middle of that of those twenty. Yeah, years. and I think that they,
2: I think this movie does a really good job of that. I think that that other than than maybe Nicholson's hairpiece and the college thing, they're 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 very convincing at all those ages, especially when they start playing older than they are. Yeah, I think Garfunkel at the end with the sort of pot belly, however yeah. they achieve that, I'm like, well, I'm, I'm buying that. Yeah. Yeah, he, I think he's good. In the film. He's really good. Yeah. He's one of these guys, you know how I, I always used to hear this thing about musicians becoming actors and how they're good for like one, one role and that's about all they've gotten. Like Sting, uh, I guess Bowie probably was never thought of, uh, you know, after Man Who Fell to Earth. Nobody thinks of his other performances, but I guess, yeah, I don't know. I I only saw Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence once. What do you think about that movie and Bowie? Um, The movie's
1: okay. It's interesting, I guess, and Bowie's pretty good in that. If you were going to pick one performance from those later years, that might be the one. Not Labyrinth? Um, No. (laughs) But uh, although my favorite Bowie moment on film is the, or you know, the performance is when he plays himself in the, uh, season of Ricky season Gervais, two of extras. Yeah. yeah. One of the funniest scenes ever. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I love that shot of, uh, Candace Bergen uh, laughing. Like I'm totally yeah. convinced that she is laughing.
1: The Harris biography talks about how the, uh, the, the intention is to ultimately show you that she, you know, maybe is, is, uh, Laughing with them for a little while, but ultimately is giving them a performance uh, in the way that you know, she already is for Garfunkel by not letting on that she and Nicholson are having an affair. But uh, um, it, but then he describes the scene as shot that that her her laughing was genuine and and you know and they were it seems they like were coming it. up with jokes and things at the time to you know to make her crack up like that.
2: Yeah, it's pretty great. Going back to Nicholson and the framing and the way it's shot, it, it feels like it was, it feels like uh, Wes Anderson uh, took some stuff from it. I mean, there, there, hmm. there are lots of shots that are very symmetrical. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, the beds on either side of the frame and then something in the middle. And then are all there are those shots where Nicholson and Garfunkel are basically looking at the camera while they're talking to each other, you know, you're getting one clo- close up of Nicholson staring straight ahead and then Garfunkel staring straight away in the middle of frame, Wes Anderson, and maybe also Paul W.S. Anderson, who's famous for putting everything in the center yeah. of the frame. And-
1: well, it's very Spartan too. And it brings attention to the frame. And that's, you know, the, the, you know, I, I always liked the film in the pan scan version, which I probably saw three or four times before the criterion laser disc came out. Uh, probably sometime around 1990 and i had that and you really get to see the composition and the and the fact that the sets are so spare there's almost never anything on the walls and you know they really they really want to focus on the human reactions in this movie it's not uh yeah it's very striking it's a very it's a very visually striking film yeah um, and then, you know, the use of close-ups and where he be- puts heads in the frame and, you know, which can work in a pan-scan version. You just put them in the center of the frame, but it's much more, it's much more striking when you see the full scope version. And it's never been released on Blu-ray, and now we're going to be showing this new 4K restoration at the Cinematheque.
2: Which I'm um, guessing will then eventually be a Blu-ray or yeah, 4K. it's got to be around
1: the corner. Maybe I'm sure Criterion's working on it.
2: There is a Spanish Blu-ray. Oh okay. But I don't know. Yeah, what Spanish that Blu-rays are,
1: yeah. they tend to be bootleg. Right. It's hard to hard to say if they got hold of a true HD version.
2: Right, right, right. Yeah, that's amazing that this hasn't come out in blu- on Blu-ray. It's actually um I I would have thought the opposite is true, but in do- in 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 goofing around on the internet, I found more material on Little Murders than Carnal Knowledge. Cuz hmm. I'm surprised. I would I thought that carnal knowledge has the has the bigger reputation at this point.
1: It's oddly the film that's been you know not been in wide circulation recently. I mean, this there's not been there's not been thirty five millimeter prints of it for years. There was a DVD that had the you know the full letterbox version and the Criterion letterbox laser disc which was probably from the same transfer. Uh, it's just not a film that's I don't think has been shown that much or had much discussion, whereas. You know, there was a DVD of Little Murders, and was there a was there a Blu-ray of Little Murders? I don't know if they've ever did that, but there is a There's a UK Blu-ray. I uh, forget which. Maybe it's just it's it's just shown up much more on you know on TV and stuff, and Carnal um, kind of Knowledge. I think has just been harder to see. Well, neither one of them have right have been streaming in
2: recent yeah. memory that I've. I they're not streaming now. Hmm. But, there, but, uh, officially, but yeah.
1: there have been DCPs <laughs> and new 35-millimeter prints made, so it's probably shown more theatrically in little Rep murders. Houses. Yeah, Little Murders. Um, and Carnal Knowledge just, you know, uh, I, I don't know the last time that a Rep House showed it, because this DCP, I think, is the first one that's been made. And, you know, if they were showing a print, they were showing something that had probably turned completely pink and red. Right. Maybe the— maybe.
2: Is it Anne Margaret who you think was singled out for praise more than anybody else
1: in association with this movie? Well, she got an Oscar nomination, right? I know. think she won a Golden Globe. But it's kind of a quintessential Nicholson performance. I mean, it's it's between what? It's between Five Easy Pieces and King of Marvin Gardens, is that it? And then, and then, last detail in Chinatown and Cuckoo's Nest. That's pretty. It's a pretty good run, you know. You think one major movie a year. And King of Marvin Gardens isn't probably held in the same regard as the others, but it's a, it's a good film and he also did his in '72 the year after this he also did Drivey. he said he directed drive," he said so it was a you know, pretty big year for him that's uh It's a pretty good run.
2: Here's what Pfeiffer says about carnal knowledge. Pfeiffer wanted carnal knowledge to be a cautionary fable through some dark and angry material. So it had to begin in a lighter place. I wanted it to start with the kind of innocent playfulness that an audience would find charming between young men and women. This is the way we all are, and this is the cuteness, he said. As Garfunkel's and Nicholson's characters age, Nicholson gets darker and darker, and as they get older, that guy, Nicholson, stays the same. The conversation barely changes, but it's not as funny anymore. It's not as innocent anymore. So cautionary to who, to... To
1: to women to stay away from guys like this? Or
2: uh, I I think maybe cautionary in the same way that he thinks of Little Murders as cautionary, like hey, this is this
1: is who we are and this is what we've become. Th-
2: this is who we're about to. Be, you know, if if we don't start paying attention to what, you know, if we don't acknowledge that 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 yeah, that the the war of the sexes is a real thing and yeah. kind of the men are toxic and and complete assholes and mm. women are conditioned to accept that as the norm. Like that is going to be the norm. I mean, yeah. Again, like I think he, I think he's implying that he thought he was like waving a flag, saying, "Hey, watch out!" But you know, it, especially in carnal knowledge, it's sort of like, "Well, this is it's too late. Like you've already, you know, <laughs> you, you're not warning us. You're just right. commenting you're just on what's already heaping misery on us." Um, here's here's something interesting. This is him talking about uh, the, the Nicholson rant. Um, one scene in Carnal Knowledge shows Nicholson's character screaming abusively at a woman, which Nichols at first thought would alienate viewers. And Pfeiffer says, Mike Nichols called me into his office and said, I don't think we can shoot this scene. It's too ugly. It's too cruel. We're going to lose the audience. We'll never get them back. Right. And by that time, Pfeiffer says, I had worked with Nichols long enough on this film to trust him and to trust his reactions. But this is the fun part. I also understood something about judo that if I argued with him, I would just get him to stay harder with his own argument. But if I just listened and shut up and let him talk, and then Nichols talked about the scene all the way to a restaurant, and I just listened, I made some cursory comments, but nothing very much, and by the time we get to the restaurant and pulled over, he said, no, I guess we have to shoot it because that's what would happen. (laughs) Nichols talked himself out out of changing the scene.
1: Yeah, I read that. That you know, we, we're we're losing him, but Nicholson's a creep from the beginning. I mean, right? Yeah. So I don't know what he's talking about. We're we're losing him, you know? Right. And I think we're just as much with him as we are at that point, as we are at the beginning. I mean, he's you know, you're watching it because it's Jack Nicholson, and he's fascinating and still charming in his own poisonous toxic way
2: yeah and he talks about seeing the film uh at the museum of modern art more recently with mike nichols and he said i said to my they were both there and he said to mike i could never have written this film today i'm a different person and he said i could never have directed it Mm -hmm. um and then pfeiffer says when i was young i was much more i used to be angry all the time and for many years i was in a rage and i exhibited a lot of that rage on the paper and it worked, but somewhere along the way, I don't know how to tell you this. I got happy, and I can't do that rage thing so much anymore.
1: Did you ever? Have you ever seen Closer?
2: No, I tried, but it's I... it's terrible. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's it, it feels like a Sam Mendes film, you know. But that's that's his that's Nichols' attempt to do, carnal knowledge again, and whatever that was, two thousand three, two thousand four. Well, my. You know, my sense,
2: my sort of completely anecdotal, like without doing a formal study, was that Nichols lost interest or lost the ability to visually craft his movies as as spectacularly as he did in the early years. And so, yeah. those later Nichols movies, some of them are good because of the material, but it's not. He's not calling attention to himself as a director. And for me, it's like you're losing your main talent as a yeah as a director. He
1: he. He's uh, he's doing exactly what you said, losing that visual component and but also hanging on to the miserablism, and that makes them really hard to watch. Uh, two, two exceptions to that, um, the mid 80s, uh, Biloxi Blues and Working Girl, which are both, you know, really nice comedies. Uh, I haven't seen Working Girl for ages. But it Biloxi Blues, interestingly, is the more visually interesting film. It's you know, it's based on a play and maybe he was engaged with it that way. But it's it almost has a kind of carnal knowledge layout of um you know, he's using CinemaScope again and it's and and the and the, his framing of the actors it's almost seemed to return to that kind of early seventies. Not quite as rigorous, but but definitely more interesting and then you know working girls like a year later or something like that and it's it, it's a it, it i remember it being a fun movie but i don't remember anything about it being you know as visually uh engaged as as his late 60s early 70s movies were
2: right another good one i think all right didn't he direct silkwood
1: yeah and i saw that 40 years ago and i you know and i, I just remember being depressed by that
2: movie. yeah so. very depressing but but a, but 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 a well-directed, I mean. a little, a little
1: more, a little more in line with what he was doing in the, in the seventies visually. I it saw, took a long that, that that was his first movie in like eight years, I think.
2: What what was the one that was eight years earlier?
1: The Fortune, I think. Oh wow! Okay. Yeah, And Hand-directed movie since The Fortune.
2: I saw Biloxi Blues on Broadway with Matthew Broderick, but famously, shortly after that, I think think did he get either they all got fired or he or they they, they were I, neil simon was like you got to get rid of these assholes they're fucking around every night on stage yeah. like and i remember i remember broderick and a bunch of the other guys sort of cracking up at times that didn't really feel like it was part of the play but they were constantly like messing with each other and i think improvising and doing stuff that was uh, yeah. yeah they were just having too good of a time
1: was, did Mike Nichols direct the stage version too? Maybe. Yeah. Okay. You don't do that to those guys, right?
2: Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, actually, so we can play two games of what was playing that that we can, You got anything else you want to say about Carnal Knowledge? I don't think so.
1: I like it more than Little Murders. I think it. I, I. I don't like it as much as I did when I was younger. I feel like it's kind of sour now. Uh, um. Visually, it's much more interesting. I kind of feel the way about it the way I do about some of those later Robert Altman films that some people still love, like the player and shortcuts. Mm. I loved them when I was in my early twenties, but I just find them so bitter and sour now. Yeah.
2: I think I feel that way about carnal knowledge and little murders. I don't think I really, really, really saw until much more recently. And so only have experienced it. Um, in its entirety or even thinking about it as a as a 50-year-old guy, and, I, and so I don't have that. This is how I felt about it when I was a kid, and this is how I feel about it now. Maybe that's why I like it more. I don't know. I'm able to sort of... There's something charming about how it captures a lot of things that I remember seeing in New York in the 70s, um, and I, maybe I'm just able to sort of forgive its, you know... Miserableness, and
1: I, th- I, I think they're both very watchable films. They're very, you know, they're very, they they're very interesting for different reasons. um I just, I guess, I just find Little Murders a little more sour than Carnal Knowledge, and Carnal Knowledge is redeemed for me by the performances and what Mike Nichols is doing yeah. visually.
2: Maybe another thing for me with Little Murders is that, aside from Gould. Um, it's the discovery of these performances by the the other main cast. Marcia Rod, I yeah. think, is is really great. We didn't I'm like, do a lot of movies. No, no, don't remember her in anything else that I've seen. Um, Vincent Gardenia, a guy who I've known forever, but really, I'm like, oh my god, he's so funny in this movie. And um, and the other two family members too. Yeah,
1: I mean, it's a much more ambitious and challenging movie for a director than Carnal Knowledge. You know, there's only. F- five speaking parts in Carnal Knowledge. You know, and Carol Kane isn't one of them. She just kind of sits there mute at the end.
2: Interesting Carol Kane story that Jules Pfeiffer tells is that um, uh, she was talking to him at some point in recent years uh, about whether uh, Carnal Knowledge was her first film or something about it, and... She said, I was in this other film that was slightly earlier. I don't she goes, I, I, I showed up and I was almost like a day player. There's a scene where there's a, 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 a riot going on on the steps of a church. She goes, I don't even know what movie it was, but I'm in that scene. And it, as it turns out, she's actually talking about Little Murders. <laughs> she, you know, when they first arrived at the church, there's another ceremony that's bursting out of it, and people are fighting on the steps of the church, outside yeah. the church. She's in that crowd. Oh, wow. But she didn't realize it was Little Murders. And Pfeiffer, it's interesting, he thought it was Little Murders, but then he said he watched Little Murders and he like couldn't. His memory was that they had shot a scene... That the, that, the, that the fight that breaks out at the actual wedding of Patsy and Alfred spills out into the streets right. and watching, watching it, he's like, no, they cut, they cut the end of that scene, which could be true also. But I think he's just misremembering because there is a big fight scene on the church steps. It's just before their ceremonies <laughs> when they first arrive. Anyway, so, so
1: maybe she's in there, but you couldn't, you couldn't find, I
2: couldn't find, yeah, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to see it, but apparently she's, she's part of that action so uh New York Times reviewed little murders on february tenth nineteen seventy one uh which as we've learned like doesn't necessarily mean that that's when it opened like the the back then that the times was wasn't necessarily sometimes but I think
1: a movie like this though that probably was the f- they had to have opened it in New York before anywhere else, but I mean, I guess it could be wrong, but but movies were so, st- releases were so staggered. I mean, yeah. for every, you know, huge studio movies, you know. You didn't, sometimes you didn't see them for weeks or months in other cities.
2: Right. And I think Little Murders was one of those movies that they were hoping they'd build up word of mouth from city to city. Sure, um, but I can't uh,
1: imagine why they thought that would happen. <laughs> yeah.
2: But opening, opening on February 10th in New York... Um,
1: Actually, I can't imagine why they thought that would happen. It's it's exactly the reason you said at the beginning about, you know, that Pfeiffer probably thought it would catch on with hippies and and the youth crowd, you know. Right.
2: But this must have been a re-release because it's already being talked about. February 71? February 71. I'm about to tell you what was opening, but it must have been a re-release. that was. that's when it opened. Yeah, no, no, no. I'm I'm moving on to other movies Oh, okay. What else was playing? Right. What else was playing? All right. Uh triple award winner, best picture of the year, best director and best supporting actress. So this is clearly like, hey, we won all these
1: Okay, so um, Well, was it, oh, that, it was the we, New York Film Critics that it was? You Ben's looking at a screen, I'm not. So I'm yeah. I'm supposed to guess. Huh? triple award uh, winner, what is it again? Best Well, it's the triple award for, winner from New York Film Critics. Oh, okay. I, so I don't know.
2: Um but it's a Jack Nicholson film.
1: Oh, five easy pieces. Yes, and it's being so it's being re-released on that day. Yeah, it probably opened at some point in 1970, and it and it. This was probably just before the Oscar nominations came out. So, which it, of which it got several. So, yes,
2: uh, a movie I've I've not seen. Maybe we've talked about. um... I don't know how to pitch this to you. <laughs> well, okay. Written by Newman and Benton.
1: Oh, there was a Crooked Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's... It's int- it's okay. It's been popping up on Criterion Channel recently. Uh, is it a Western? It is. Western? It's a Western, and it's... Like a contemporary Western
2: or a no, period? No, pe- it's okay.
1: period. Um, it has something to do with Kirk Douglas trying to escape from a prison, and Henry Fonda's like, The Warden. I saw it once. It's the penultimate feature by joseph l mankowitz right um you know who was one of the great screenwriter directors from hollywood's golden era but by this point had become you know a guy who directed other people's scripts i think uh there was a crooked man was benton and newman and then his last film was sleuth which was the anthony schaefer play
2: yeah Uh, The tagline was, locked in a living hellhole. It took the crooked man to handle them, even if he
1: had to kill them to do it. Yeah. (laughs) It's not bad. It's, you know, I much prefer the Benton and Newman, uh, their next collaboration, which I think was Bad Company. uh, Although maybe What's Up Doc came out first, but, um, which is a Western from 72 with, uh, that, that Benton directed. His first directorial job with Jeff Bridges and Barry Brown.
2: There is um, an ad for a Columbia Pictures Showtime directory. So, this is all the Columbia Pictures, I guess, that are showing. Mm. It. Oh, one of
1: those ads that has like four movies in it. Yeah, so
2: it's got five easy pieces. Uh huh. It's is, got. Is dollars in there? No, I wish. Uh, it's got the Owl and the Pussycat Dollars that I showed at my Bar Mitzvah yeah. 16 millimeter print in my bedroom, in case you haven't listened to every episode. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, owl and the Pussycat, um, Casavetti's Husband, mm. um, Investigation of a Citizen Above Suspicion, mm. never seen.
1: Yeah, I've seen it. It's good. I think we showed it at the Wisconsin Film Festival one year. Oh, really? It's a great Morricone score, Like one of the best. It's a very political film by uh, Elio Petri. So these are all, this is all very pointedly Oscar campaign mm. films. An Investigation of a Citizen won the 1970 Oscar for Best Foreign Film. Okay, here's a film that I haven't
2: seen, rated GP. Uh, this is also in the same ad, and Judith Chris says it's Truffaut's most glowing work.
1: Is it The Wild Child? Nope. Uh, 1970 or seventy one. Uh, bed and board. Bed and board. Yeah, bed and board. I like bed and board. Is the is the is the Duanel film I like most after 400 Blows. Most people really like Stolen Kisses, but I'm, I much more enjoyed Bed and Board. The last one, Love on the Run, I think it's called. Is is it just a travesty? Mm. Uh, and the last
2: one in this Columbia Pictures Showtime directory. The tagline is, and forgive them their trespasses. I don't think this was
1: Oscar bait. (laughs) Yeah, this was something to fill up the grindhouses (laughs) and drive-ins. And forgive them their trespasses. Um, I don't know that that's helpful. I don't know. No, what is it? Doctor's Wives. Oh, yeah. Is that like a soap opera? That's not like a Jacqueline Suzanne thing, is it? It sounds like it might be. I don't know it. Is Diane Cannon in that?
2: There's no info on it. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll bump into an ad later on for it. This is just sort of like the lineup. Um, Hard movie to see. Oh, yeah? I
1: a copy of that.
2: Huh. Uh, so this Roger Greenspun uh, is the guy who reviewed Little Murders, and this guy just spoils the entire movie in the first paragraph. He says, Almost everyone must know the history of Jules Pfeiffer's Little Murders, how it opened on Broadway in 67, closed within a week, Played successfully in London, and then reopened in '69 to high praise in a long run for an off Broadway production. I assume that everybody also knows that the story of Little Murders is how Alfred the Apathist marries Patsy the Optimist and how she is shot dead on their wedding night. What, 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 dude, come on,
1: man. Yeah. Wow. It's assuming,
2: it's <laughs> assuming lot. a lot. Yeah. I mean, again, and that's, it's interesting. Maybe that is like the whole sort of insular New York. Broadway world that everyone right, assumes right. that everyone just and knows. Everyone was Every- talking about this. Yeah. yeah.
1: But, you know, also critics being spoilers weren't, that wasn't such a big deal.
2: Right. Uh, here's a movie that I haven't seen. Uh, one of the years, 10 best says John Simon, hmm. a delight to the mind says John Judith, Simon, Judith Crist, uh, American premiere tomorrow at the Lincoln art theater. Uh Carlos Saura. Saura.
1: Carlos Sara of 1970
2: or 71. This is 71.
1: Uh is that peppermint something or other? Uh
2: The Garden of Delights.
1: Oh no, never saw it. Yeah. There's know. a bunch of Saura films that just went on Criterion Channel. I watched his uh oh. 1974 movie Cousin Angelica, which is interesting. Hmm.
2: It's a movie I've never heard of. Uh, and don't know who did it. Uh, you want to hear some reviews? I can't imagine.
1: I is going to give anything away? <laughs> Not really. Uh, Pigeons? Oh yeah, I, I don't know it. It's, uh, hard to see. I think it was like a counterculture kind of.
2: American film? I think so. Oh, it is. It's a New York comedy. A whirlwind, out of love, back in love, uptown, downtown New York comedy. Makes sense, Pigeons. New York was famous for its pigeons at one point. Maybe still is.
1: Right. Uh, also known as uh, The Sidelong Glances of a Pigeon Kicker. Oh. It was released under that title at some point.
2: Here's a movie I don't know anything about. Uh, directed by Laszlo Benedek. With Trevor Howard.
1: Liv Ullman. Oh, yeah. The Night Digger. The Night Visitor. Night Visitor. Yeah, that's, in, that's actually a pretty good film. It has a... Uh, uh, Laszlo Benedict's not a particularly interesting director, but it's that movie has got some weird stuff in it. I remember it has a, a pretty interesting uh, prison escape sequence for Max von Sydow, who has to also put himself back in his jail cell the next morning um, in order to get away with something. I can't remember what, but... Yeah, it's worth seeing. It's out there on Blu-ray and it's kind of interesting to see those two in the middle of their all those Bergman films and the the Jan films.
2: The tagline is locked in the cold asylum of his mind a sane man stalks his prey. Right.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe it's not a prison but like in a, some kind of asylum where he's supposed to be locked up. But I mean
2: it, it 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 looks like they're pitching it as a as a horror movie.
1: Yeah, and I think that 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 kind of marketing continues like right up to the blu-rays and stuff but it's not it's more like a psychological thriller you know music by henry mancini oh that's good
2: produced by mel ferrer hmm. and with a great pull quote from gene shallot yeah. or oh yeah who was writing for look magazine i i remember mcpadden doing a whole gene shallot thing and talking about the fact that uh, he was just a tv guy and was not didn't do written reviews but i guess he did yeah, it's probably see, before the Today Show. Yeah, years have fled since we've had a chilling mystery, but here is one at last to squeeze the mind. If your flesh doesn't crawl, it's on too tight. <laughs> uh, Thunderball and You Only Live Twice were playing as a
1: double feature. Yeah, but those Bond films—they were. Well, you could see them all the way up to the early '80s. They were even the earliest ones were getting mm-hmm. re-released all the time. Uh, Cinema
2: Five, the Rugoff Theatres, where we mm. show the documentary. Was that last year?
1: Yeah, twenty twenty, I think it was our, during our oh, right. COVID it was a, year.
2: Yeah, yeah. So they have uh they have their list of of what they were showing. Sudden Terror at the Murray Hill. I don't good know.
1: good film. Um uh it's a thriller with uh if I suppose it's the same movie with Mark Lester, right? And Susan George? It's um Oh yes. British film shot in Malta. That's like Boy Who Cried Wolf kinda Thing um, and uh, pretty pretty good. Directed by John Huff, who later did uh, Dirty Mary, Crazy Larry, and uh, Legend of Hell House. Oh wow! Um, Little Murders uh, at the Beekman,
2: Ramparts of Clay at Cinema Two. You know that movie? Yeah,
1: I've seen it. It's uh, I think it has something to do with the uh, Algerian War and conflict. I think, if I remember right. Say Hello to Yesterday at the Paris. Never heard of that. What's that?
2: Must be French. Hmm. I don't know why, but I, th- I feel like at the Paris, they would show French films if they could. Uh, Little Big Man was playing at the Paramount.
1: Little Big Man in uh, February. Yep. Of 71. Yeah. I just saw a movie. Now I can't remember if it takes place in 70 or 70. No, it's, yeah. I just saw a movie that will be coming out soon where the two main characters go to see Little Big Man the day after Christmas 1970, I think. Husbands? The Husbands, husband a- yeah, which probably hadn't been out too long.
2: Gimme Shelter was playing at the Plaza. Right. The Projectionist was playing at the Fifth
1: Avenue Cinema. Hmm. It's got... Uh, Roddy Dangerfield as the theater manager. Is that That's actually a pretty funny scene. Have you ever seen that? Yeah. Oh, keep your tie on, kid.
2: Joe was playing at the 8th Street Playhouse, and Joe is interesting because there's an ad for it, but it says, and I don't know if this was a joke because of the, let me see if I can find the ad. Because um, it, it says Joe, and then in parentheses in the ad, and the missus, M-I-S-S-U-S. Was that ever the name of the film, where they just... Here, let me show you the ad, since we're in the same room. Who's
1: the missus? You, well, do Do you see his wife in the well, film? I can't remember. I, I, there's a, so
2: there's a picture... I mean, this is not the greatest... Can you see this? Yeah. Like, there's a woman in the picture with yeah, kissing, Peter Boyle. Kissing
1: Peter Boyle's head. Weird. But
2: isn't that crazy? I haven't,
1: I haven't seen the movie for a while. Yeah, it's like... Uh, you know, it's funny... Um, and Joe is in quotation marks, and Ann the missus comes after in parentheses. They did the same thing five years later for the sequel to True Grit. Do you remember that? No. The sequel to True Grit with John Wayne and Katherine Hepburn It's called Rooster Cogburn. Rooster Cogburn. Mm-hmm. And then in parentheses, and the, Ann La- the Lady, which is not part of the title. See, the title I always of the movie thought it is, was. It's no, interesting. The title of the movie is Rooster Cogburn, but it was just on the ads, you know? I
2: used to see it right advertised, and maybe even when it was on TV. Yeah. Like I always heard Rooster
1: Cogburn and the Lady. I bet they just they, they just came up with that too late. Like after all the prints were made, they were like, we should have called it Rooster Cogburn and the Lady. But they couldn't possibly have been thinking that they should have called Joe Joe and the Missus. No, and I, and I haven't seen Joe for years, and I I like Joe, but I don't I don't remember anything about the Misses. Joe doesn't even come into the film until it's like almost two thirds over, right? Isn't yeah. that? <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, I don't know about two thirds. Uh, maybe it's a. It's a it's a big stretch. I remember that. Huh. I'd like to see Joe again. And Joe was one of those movies, I think, because, you know, it had an exploitation distributor, but it got taken seriously by critics that was just right. always playing. They kept those prints in circulation for years. Like, that was a big hit, that movie.
2: Here's a movie I don't know anything about. Um, with uh, Faye Dunaway, directed by Jerry Schatzberg.
1: Puzzle of a Downfall Child. I've seen it. I saw Jerry Schatzberg introduce it at the Museum of the Moving Image in Queens. Uh, it's not... It, a lot of people like it. It's it's kind of interesting because Schatzberg was a fashion photographer and it takes place in that world. Um, so it was a very personal movie for him and it's got some kind of, you know, that early 70s narrative fragmentation that's kind of interesting. But it was another... I think it's a Universal film and it's it's one of those string of films in 70, 71 that Universal was putting out these, you know, talented up and coming directors working with small budgets. And I think it's before Panic in Needle Park mm. for Schatzberg. Mm-hmm. Puzzle of a Downfall Child might be his first feature. Um, I'm not crazy about either of those films, Puzzle or... Panic. panic but i really like scarecrow a lot and and i like some of schatzberg's later films too
2: uh it was a disney double feature playing i don't think i've seen either of these movies and one of them i don't think i've ever heard of um but the main attraction uh was with uh had ronnie howard in it but starring steve forrest jack El- Elam. Jack Elam. Jack Elam. Um directed by Robert Totten. Hmm. I don't
1: know what could that Together, be.
2: Together they met every challenge of an untamed
1: land. Boy, there's there are a lot of Disney movies from They put out a movie like every quarter in the first half of the seventies and the late sixties. What
2: I'm familiar with this title. I don't what, think what it, is it. It's called The Wild Country. I ah, see. Totally lost on me. But it was playing with something called it's hard to read if this I'm going to assume this is Nick the Orphan Elephant? Hmm. I wonder if that's just a short. Maybe I don't know, it's rated and everything here. Look. Yeah, it's
1: probably a
2: short, you think?
1: Yeah, it's probably not animated.
2: Hmm. John Wayne, uh you could see Rio Lobo.
1: Not bad. Howard Hawks' last film.
2: And it was playing with Lee Marvin and
1: Monty Walsh. Very good film. I like Monty Walsh a lot. Is that also a Western? It is. It's um, it's the f- one of two movies directed by the cinematographer William Fraker. Oh. um, And it's um, Jack uh, Palance, Lee Marvin, and Jean Moreau, and Mitchell Ryan, who's very good. It's based on a novel by uh, Jack Schaefer who also wrote Shane. Um and it's 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 a it's the classic early 70s dying of the west kind of movie. It's a it's a movie about dying sad cowboys but it's good. Great John Barry score in uh and Monty Walsh. I recommend it. Okay, I'll check
2: that out. Um anyway, rounding out what was showing um I mean there's a lot of stuff but there're uh, Pretty big ad for Love Story, um, and it says at the top of the ad. It says, "Starting today, a phenomenon—meaning Love
1: Story—comes to New Jersey with an exclamation point." So, the, in February of seventy-one, New Jersey didn't get Love Story until then.
2: Apparently, wow! Exclusive first-run New Jersey engagement. But
1: I don't know when it when it opened in seventy. It might have been late in the year, so it's not maybe not that big a deal. And then also. Uh, tora Tora Torah. I like Tora Tora Tora. I'm I'm for Tora Torah. I'm for a for a for a, for a, for a, for a. <laughs> So anyway, moving
2: on to July first, nineteen seventy-one, when uh, Carnal Knowledge was reviewed by Vincent Canby. Um. Uh.
1: Shaft was in theaters. Um. Truck Turner any day.
2: Yeah, me too. Uh,
1: Murphy's War. Not bad, Murphy's War. It's all right. Peter O'Toole and a uh, Peter Yates directed World War II story.
2: Yes. Also, Philippe Noire. Philippe Noire. Fellini's The Clowns was in town.
1: Yeah, it's not one of my favorite Fellinis. Ryan's Daughter. Ryan's daughter, yeah, that would have been released at the end of seventy in New York. That's interesting to see that it's still playing M- a movie, you know. It was I guess it was probably still one of those roadshow engagements. Maybe it had moved out of the now at popular prices kind of thing, you know? Right.
2: Uh there was a revival house called the East Side Playhouse. Uh and their ad says, Now the great ones are on the upper east side. So for two bucks Uh, You could see Thunder Road, (laughs) Red River, A Thousand Clowns, and Charge of the Light Brigade.
1: Interesting rep house selections. Uh, Thunder Road, another movie that was in circulation for years and years.
2: Uh, Walkabout was premiering at the Plaza.
1: I'm a big fan of that one.
2: You know that's a movie that I saw as a kid on TV, uh, but watched again recently ha- and had no memory of the opening of that film and how crazy mm, that is.
1: That montage. Well, the montage. Oh, oh and then the father. Yeah, the yeah, father. It's stuff. very dark.
2: Yeah, I'm like, did they cut this out of the yeah. TV version? Maybe. I don't know. Yeah, because wasn't the movie rated G or GP yeah, or something? GP.
1: Like that? GP. Yeah, it's um, it's very disturbing. Um I got sh- I we were shown it on a sixteen millimeter print in my uh junior year of high school. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It had an effect on me. It's good.
2: Isn't Jenny a gutter naked in that movie? Oh yeah.
1: Yeah.
2: I used to love her uh Logan's Run and then um American Werewolf in London.
1: I'm pretty sure the uh, first nudity in any movie I ever saw was uh, uh, watching Equus on uh, on TV, uncut. And maybe hair, seeing hair in a the theater. I've never seen Equus on stage or screen. And the movie's a little... Uh, I think the word Pauline Kale used to describe a lot of Sidney Lumet films was embalmed. Equus is a little embalmed.
2: Here's a movie I used to hear about all the time. I'm pretty sure I've never seen it. Uh, I'll give you some of the supporting cast. Again, this is July 71. Jack Warden, David Burns, and Dom DeLuise. I'll give you one more. Barbara Harris.
1: Oh, is it uh, Harry Kellerman? Yeah.
2: Well, now, is the name of this movie who is Harry Kellerman and why, why is he is saying this? those terrible things about me? Yes. Okay. That is the full title. Yes. That's what it says in the end. I don't
1: think it's ever been shortened to Harry Kellerman. Nobody bothered. <laughs> <laughs> is it bad? It's it's not particularly good. It's, um, Yeah, I don't, I'm not, it's, uh. It was a movie I it took a long time to catch up with, and I finally saw it and was like hoping for another 70s gem, but right. Now so could you get to see um, you know uh, Dustin Hoffman's character is partly inspired by Shell Silverstein, at least the kind of oh. and all of his songs in the film are written by Shell Silverstein. And then later in the film, Shell Silverstein shows up as himself performing huh. with Dustin Hoffman. so that's a little weird, but um, you get to see that. So directed by Ulu Grossbard. Ulu Grossbard, I think it's his second feature after the subject was Roses. But um, the next uh, Grossbard, Hoffman, Hoffman team straight, straight Time, which is great. I just saw again recently, and, and that is just a great, great film. Yeah, uh, Willard
2: was showing. Yay. I didn't realize that was 71. Get him, boys.
1: <laughs> Jeez, Willard, look at all the rats. <laughs>
2: uh shaft uh was actually playing uh death in venice was in town oh here's a special notice at the top of the mccabe and Mrs. you killed socrates sorry i can't <laughs> get off willard that's all right did you uh did you watch the remake with what's yeah crispin it, was, glover? it
1: was very faithful it was mm-hmm. it was kind of fun to watch crispin glover the thing crispin glover brought to it was uh Creepiness. <laughs> uh, well, definitely that. Bruce Davidson's got his own level yeah. of creepiness, oh, yeah. but 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 uh, Crispin Glover's innovation was: as the rats are attacking, he goes, "Rip it, rip it, rip it, rip it," <laughs> or, or "Tear it," or maybe he says both those things. I can't remember. That was fun. So the top of the McCabe and Mrs. Miller ad
2: says has a, has an announcement: special notice due to a breakdown of the air conditioning system. <laughs> The Criterion Theater will be closed until further notice. McCabe and Mrs. Miller, which has been playing there, will continue at the Lowe's Cine Third Avenue at eighty sixth street.
0: Hmm.
1: The reopening date for the Criterion will be announced as soon as possible. I wonder if that on wow. some level affected McCabe and Mrs. Miller's business and reception, I wonder.
2: Because hmm. it's not it was not a hit, you know, it's now thought of one of the great movies of seventy
1: one, but right, it's uh I don't think it was around too long. Uh, Clute was playing. Mm-hmm. Jane Fonda was offered the uh, Anne Margaret part in Carnal Knowledge, but uh, said she didn't want to do it. Didn't want. I think they they were they wanted her to gain some weight. Hmm. Well, what and she went to do Clute instead. Which well, was what's her enough. name calls her a tub of lard. Mm-hmm. In in, in Anne <laughs> Margaret gained weight for the part. I mean, she doesn't seem like a tub of lard. No, but it's coming out of the mouth of a a very sour character. Yeah, absolutely. Very cynical character.
2: Uh, But, you know, a a great performance by Anne Margaret. Um, Yeah, I think she's terrific. I mean, I'm assuming that's her best performance.
1: She's a good actress. And I think that was one of the things about the movie is that she always had been, but it was, you know, it was in a movie that, you know, wasn't a kind of, mindless George Sidney musical or you know something it was the first time she was in a really serious film and she'd been in things like CC and company and things and and she was I think she was able to um she was able to uh really build on that and she was in things like well I mean she got nominated again for Tommy a couple of years later hmm. and that's you know certainly a prestige film yeah um and she's good in that and she's really good in magic yeah um and you know and she was she was doing you know serious movies and prestige movies for another you know well into the 80s um you know i think and i think people were taking you know taking her seriously and then she went back and she was doing you know like her vegas show and stuff like that so i think there was probably always that that kind of image she was fighting she liked to do the dancing and the singing and everything but you know, so I think she was happy to do that, but I think people were still taking her seriously and casting her and things that you know where she could actually act.
2: Drive, he said, uh, was at the lowes Tower. East? Oh, so that's
1: a '71 film. I guess. So. Okay, I'm I'm wrong. Yeah, that's I was taking that as '72. Uh, red Carpet
2: Theaters are proud to present the premiere engagement of MGM's, and I'm leaving the title out. Is a George C. Scott film that I saw. Oh, the Last Run.
1: Last Run. Yeah, which was his first movie after Patton.
2: Right. It's the film he wanted to do. I I recently heard um, it was Dino and Mike in their I Eat Movies podcast talked Uh, about the last run.
1: And it was totally like George C. Scott was like, I want to make like a Bogart movie. And it was his show, too. He was he had that much clout. He got John Huston fired from the movie. And yeah, Richard Fleischer, I got to meet over a weekend uh, almost 20 years ago. And he ended up replacing Houston, and he told me about the, the day he arrived at the location and hotel to take over the shooting, and Houston was made a point of being there to exit as he was entering, and the the staff of the hotel were getting down on their knees and kissing his ring. <laughs> he wanted to show Fleischer how beloved he was. Some other
2: podcast was talking about white hunter black heart recently i think maybe Ah. it was pcp or whatever and they played a clip and i had forgotten i know i've seen that movie but i've forgotten that that eastwood is really doing a houston voice she does the voice (laughs) it's kind of crazy um uh, not quite daniel day lewis caliber no but it's good i like
1: i like eastwood in that film yeah it's an interesting movie
2: uh now, here's something that really, every time I see this, I'm like, this was 71? Man, they cranked those movies out fast. Escape from the Planet of the Apes. Yeah,
1: playing. one a year. They did, there's like, I think less than two years between the release of Planet and Beneath. And then once a year for the next three years, they put out another ape movie and then by 74 they were doing the tv series
2: was there any other film series like this at the time and that was a pace like was there a precedent for this
1: Mm, there has to be I sure i mean there's james I mean, bond the but universal t- monster movies you know you get, sure okay one a year in the yes, 40s yes, but and- let's
2: say since the 50s or 60s like because um, james bond even at its height wasn't f- every other year was it they were oh they were for the okay.
1: fact the first three are every year 62 63 64 dr okay. no from russia with love goldfinger and then it's and then it's every two years and do they take like two and a half years off between diamonds are forever and Live and That Die, something like that, hmm. and then uh, Man with the Golden Gun is just a year after Living That Die. Huh. Then it then it goes back to every two years until until Roger Moore finishes, and then there's, I think I think, no, that's right. There was two years till the Timothy Dalton films. I think the big gap is between Timothy Dalton and Pierce Brosnan. There's like a six year gap there.
2: Here's a movie that is reviewed and I guess premiering that week. Uh Debbie Reynolds and Shelley Winters.
1: Oh, uh Aunt Helen? Is that the one? Or whatever what's,
2: if... what's the Matter with Helen? What's the matter with Helen? Directed by Curtis Harrington. Curtis Harrington. Made
1: I think back to back with whatever happened to Aunt Alice or which is the Ruth Gordon and oh, Ah yeah. yeah.
2: Director of photography Lucian
1: Ballard. Yeah. Yeah, those movies are okay. I'm not crazy about those. Uh, K-
2: Vincent Camby was not a fan. He said, this new movie is so perfunctory, it's likely to give misogyny a bad name. And I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know what he's talking about. Oh, that Vincent Camby. There's a big ad for a movie uh, that I've never heard of. Um Roger Greenspun says Michael Moriarty and Topo Swope are really something special. Topo Swope. Yeah. (laughs) Cold, calculating, killing machine, a powerful, highly charged film, fine, sensitive performances, extremely literate work. I have no idea.
1: Glory Boy. Never heard of
2: it. Yeah, me either. Who even knew Michael Moriarty was.
1: Cinerama releasing. And that's not Michael Moriarty on the ad. That looks like. No.
2: That must be Topo Swope. (laughs)
1: <laughs> wow
2: glory boy There's a so do you think Topo
1: Swope's a man uh, I don't know that looks like uh, Mitchell Ryan doesn't it a little bit yeah Topo Swope is an actress oh okay He's in pretty maids all in a row well then I don't know who the hell this guy is in the ad
2: but look at the tagline for Willard
1: well, there tears him up. No, maybe. So maybe. Maybe he. Maybe that. that isn't. Maybe that isn't uh, Crispin Glover's innovation. <laughs> or
2: maybe he saw the ad. So
1: there's. What's the title of that film again? The the topo swope film? Glory Boy. Okay, there's nothing under her IMDb under that title. So it must be My Old Man's Place. Two Soldiers Returned from Vietnam with Serious PTSD. That sounds like it, right? That sounds right. Yes. That is Mitchell Ryan. <laughs> nice. And Arthur Kennedy's in it. And William Devane. Oh, William Devane. And Peter Donat, who plays Senator Quested in Godfather 2. Wow. And it's directed by Edwin Sharon. Who's that? Uh, the same year he directed Valdez is coming, the Burt Lancaster, mm. Elmore Leonard Western. T looks like a big TV guy, Law & Order. Hmm. I'd i I'd, I'd be interested in seeing that movie. Sure. Cast like that.
2: All right. I think we've done it. We've done it. I think we've really done it this time. Yeah. Thanks for asking me. Hey, thanks for doing it. It's been a while. Yeah. Um. Good. I'm excited to see the 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 full screen the uh, the the restoration of Carnal Knowledge. Yeah, me too. We've got a bunch of other great '70 movies coming our coming our way this semester at Cinematheque. So if you're in the area, come join us right look us up online all right thanks
1: Jim thanks Ben